Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we ocularly discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Today, however, we dip our toes into the robust art form of the prose novelization of a comic book series. A transfer not from screen to page, but rather page to different looking page. Novelizations are cleverly utilized equalizers. Whereas a graphic novel can be so esoteric as to be nearly impenetrable for new readers, novelizations take the chaotic tumble of heroes and villains that populate its story and build out their backstories in compact, compelling bursts of interior thought. Recognizing that this adventure is about the weaponization of characters' inner desires and tightly hidden transgressions, novelizations live equally in the mind palaces of their characters, as they do in the real, physical world, and in doing so, underscore the stakes of this thousand-character murder mystery. Novelizations show that it is possible to maintain the spirit of a graphic novel in prose, while the prose also enriches and evolves past that source material. We are your hosts, a crazy cosmic order of peeping toms. I couldn't, I couldn't remember, was that in the novelization? <laughs> I don't remember. I think so. Yeah, I saw that in the graphic novel. I was like, and that's what we are, and I'll be noting that. <laughs> we are your hosts of Crazy Cosmic Order of Peeping Toms. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm John Goodman. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Original Sin is a 2014 comic book storyline published by Marvel Comics. Written by Jason Aaron and illustrated by Mike Diodato Jr. It chronicles the murder investigation that ensues when Uatu the Watcher, a peaceful and powerful creature who dwells on the moon, is found dead. As multiple teams of X-Men, Avengers, and some other people follow various leads, they learn that the Watcher's eyes, carved out post-mortem and unaccounted for, are potent weapons capable of revealing every secret anyone has ever harbored. And also doing some other stuff, mm. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and all these guys find the killer before he uses the eyes to wreak havoc or whatever else. And can our heroes themselves cope with the eye, which can tell of a secret coalition of protectors, even more secret than their secretive coalition of protectors? And there's a lot happening here. <laughs> so much. The novelization of Original Sin was written by a friend of the podcast, Gavin Smith. It was published by Titan Books in October 2022. I have so many questions for Gavin when we interview him, but the first couple are just, <laughs> yeah. why is he suddenly Gavin Smith when he's always been Gavin G. Smith on the cover of other books? And then, also, mm -hmm. uh, let me find it. Uh, oh, yeah. Here's, uh, here's from the copyright page of this book. Gavin Smith asserts the moral right to be identified as the author of this work. Unchill. Very unchill. What does that mean? <laughs> huh. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Also, like, why is the cover of this book, like, almost none of these characters are in this story? What's going on? Yeah, Captain America looks like the main cover, main character on that cover, and he's yeah. sort of a side I mean, character. I think, I mean, I don't... You Exactly, John. Captain America is there. Scarlet Witch is there. Doctor Doom is there. Not in the book oh. at all. Like Wolverine, Thor, like Iron Man, yeah. This looks like J. Jonah Jameson to me. Crazy. Spider-Man is there. I think this is Captain Marvel. I think this is Luke Cage. I Storm is back here. I have no <laughs> idea who this guy is. 
<laughs> this little dude, no clue. This lady, I don't know. It, that might, I don't know. It's just like, there are main characters in this book, and they are not on the front of the book. There like, are, fresh. I would say, maybe like 20-ish main characters in this book. <laughs> <laughs> would you say that? Yeah, you could populate the cover right, of could, the book yeah, with the characters in the book. You could make this the group book. shot with the, the sort of I want to be clear because really I, you know, I always lightly jibe the, the, the novels we read and whatnot, and I feel like the author might listen to this. I loved this book. Like, I really, <laughs> especially given that I read the graphic novel first, I just thought it was really cool how it was adapting uh, still images into, into text. But I do wonder, it's such an interesting challenge to set oneself to go, I have 20 main characters. I think the one who will have the first person's perspective is the one who has the big secret I don't want to reveal. Well, that's sort of in the comic as well, right? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so, because the comic... So, uh, this is a good... Well, before we jump in, Hannah, I assume you and I have a very similar relationship to Marvel. You've probably seen a dozen of these films and haven't read comic books. I've read some comic books, but very piecemeal. John, what about you? Will you have any background with the Marvel comics? Yeah, I'm sort of a comics guy. I, I'm not, uh, like, among other comics people, I would be sort of a poser. Like, I haven't read that much of the, like, deep stuff. But, like, I, I've read a good, a, a big handful of Marvel comics, uh, and I feel like I know... I knew who most of these characters were. I had a sense of, like, um, what their deal sort of was. Um, yeah. But I hadn't read Original Sin before coming on this podcast. Um, and I, I also really liked the book. I will be razzing it a little bit because it has it has its quirks from the adaptation, but very curious to hear what Gavin has I, to say when you I think that's him. a great way to sum it up, too, is it, it really has its quirks from the, from the source material. The source yeah. material, as I said in the intro, is just... It's, the, the artwork is really cool... The story is so damn confusing, and just page to page, it'll be, Nick Fury's here, he's shooting, we don't know why, oh good, uh, Exterminatrix showed up, and you're, you're going, she's who? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, I skimmed through the graphic novel last night, and I was like, thank God I read the book first, I would have no idea what was happening. I felt the exact happening. same way, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. To speak of the beginning of the book, the reason that I think it's such a weird challenge to put the secret i mean we, we'll just discuss spoilers here wait so you're gonna you're, we're gonna we're gonna say who who killed the watcher here we're not we're yes okay. so listen back of the book it's a pretty fun mystery i will say it's a it's a fun secret it to discover turns it got me so sure, not too late to, not too too late to unplug your headphones stop listening Right now, is that? Am I allowed to tell your listeners to stop? No, listening that's great. To your podcast. I, if if you are looking to experience the story of Original Sin, uh, eight nine year old comic book story uh, for the first time, <laughs> definitely listen to this afterward. Yeah. Uh, because I I, I want to discuss how this holds together once you know the truth, right? I mean, the, yes. the truth is that. Of course, Nick Fury, very different Nick Fury than I'm used to from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was impossible for me to not imagine this Nick Fury just being Charlton Heston. Just old <laughs> as fuck and what are these what are these kids doing? <laughs> Nick Fury get rounds up a bunch of people to find out who killed Uatu the Watcher and the answer is essentially that there was a break and enter job 
on the Watcher, uh, headed by the Orb, uh, Midas, and Exterminatrix, and they shot him but didn't kill him, and then Nick Fury showed up and killed him, which the the reason he did it, right, was self-defense? No, I would not say self-defense. I would I think it was a little bit of personal animus, right? Yeah, yeah, I would say it is It is pure uh, spite and hatred for being judged <laughs> for committing war crimes. <laughs> the only reason I ask is because there is a chapter, uh, maybe I can find it later, where Nick Fury is thinking, he was raising his gun at me, I didn't want to do it, that sort of thing. But yeah. because it's the Watcher, the Watcher might have been raising his gun at him because he knew Nick Fury was about to kill him. It gets all sorts of Like, confusing. the Watcher is obviously not going to attack Nick Fury. That's like, that's... Not his thing. That's not... You can't say it's self-defense. And by that point in the story, I feel like Nick Fury is like, how dare you make me do this? You can't decide the future. I'm not going to kill you. I don't want to kill you. Oh, I did. (laughs) You know, I do actually. And we do also discover that Nick Fury, this is not the only murder he's guilty of. Uh, Like this, this comic, this story has a lot of like digging into his past and uncovering a, a, these, you know, literal alternate dimensions filled with bodies of people who Nick Fury has (laughs) murdered. So he's in the habit. I cannot get over how funny it is that the premise of Original Sin is... There's these superheroes, they, many of their identities are concealed or whatever, and then they're protecting us against terrors, and then they learn that there's more terrors they didn't know about, and a whole other secret thing. <laughs> there's, a, there's a line I liked where he's like, uh, for, every, for every underground monster that bursts out to attack Manhattan, there are ten that never made it to the surface, because Nick Fury murdered them on the way. Um, he sure did. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a compelling concept in a, in a sort of weird, paranoid, deep state kind of way. <laughs> to jump to the beginning of the book, the reason that I think it's so strange that Nick Fury is the perspective character in some chapters, he's the only character who gets I verbiage, right? Yes. I did this, I did this. Because on page, essentially one, it's page seven, but it's the first page. It says, the two intruders to the blue area of the moon wore spacesuits of no little sophistication to survive the vacuum of space. A camera drone released by one of the intruders sped across the blue-tinged lunar wasteland toward the alien citadel. And it's just an awkward way. At, I, I was a little worried on the first page of the book. I was going, oh, this is really grappling with the way comic books express story. You can show me the back of someone's head and they're breaking in somewhere and I go, who is that? But in a book, it's harder. You have to use language like some guy was doing this. Will I tell you who? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just thought it was extra challenging that he has to write all of these chapters where Nick Fury, I mean, there's some really clever turns of phrase, but there's so many chapters where Nick Fury is like, Bucky came at me with a sword. I thought to myself, that's the type of rage that could kill someone like the Watcher. And and I'm thinking, okay, so he's saying that because he's auditioning him to be the new Nick Fury who fights mm-hmm. space monsters, but he's, <laughs> his inner monologue is worded to trick me. <laughs> that's good, though. That's a good yes. one. Yeah. Because the I, the first person, for a long time in the book, we don't know who the first person character is. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. So we we suspect that they might be the murderer, um, but we don't know that it's Nick Fury. So it's sort of a way of keeping him anonymous, of doing the back of the head thing that you're talking about, right? 
Yeah, I think the the back half of the book, though, when we kind of know it's him, mm-hmm. and they're still trying to keep it from us that he did the murder, mm-hmm. that's when it gets a little... I mean, I think it's really well done. It's just such a hurdle to set for yourself. Yes, I also agree it's well done. And I think Gavin does a really good job of like engineering the interiority to be like, here's why I'm not just saying it was me I did the killing. That like the... Yeah. The psychological stuff he builds for Nick Fury to be like, I don't see myself as a killer, I don't see myself as a monster, but also I totally do. It tracks that then he'd be like, I'm not going to just cop to uh, crimes. Yeah, even in his his own thoughts. To myself or to anybody, necessarily, yeah. Yeah, so do you, you guys looked at the graphic novel. Do, what a strange choice, I, and I mean this by the authors of the graphic novel, to include the beginning of the graphic novel the part about nova at all this superhero nova i'm sure a lot of marvel heads are listening being like these guys don't know anything we really don't <laughs> you're right <laughs> we don't you've come to the wrong show <laughs> <laughs> you know we know a lot about books <laughs> it, the, the beginning of the graphic novel has nova coming up to uh the watcher and we get the story of how nova you know resented his father and his father had these crazy tales of being a superhero that no one in the family believed and then his father disappeared and it turned out that he was a superhero and this kid is going to take over the mantle and he goes and talks to the watcher and i guess if this were a movie it would be a good way to introduce an audience to the concept of the watcher is maybe why it's in there that he walks in and sees the arsenal and is is going wow this is crazy there's so much dangerous stuff here his version of the spidey sense goes off and he goes even though i'm safe here with the watcher i'm surrounded by so many dangerous things but it just is so strange as someone coming into this cold because it never comes back nova never ever shows up after the first chapter mm. this is a thing with with the way comics are published i think i think what you would you have there uh, is like a um that's called like a trade or like a trade paperback and it's i guess it's not a paper it's a hardcover hard for sure but um they th- that's like many different like comic series sort of or or issues that were published monthly compiled into a book so I, f- I think mm-hmm. some editor made the choice to include an issue of Nova that was like that came out to sort of promote Original Sin. Probably, um, I don't know if the, like the author of Original Sin would necessarily consider that part of the story. I, I'm not sure, but because like the art hmm. style is different in that opening, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's maybe a different a different artist writer team. So having not like in-depth read the graphic novel and just based on your description there, are we to believe that Nova's dad is the guy that Nick Fury sees die and then he takes over the thing or no? Unrelated? I don't think so. I think unrelated. Just way too little information to ever know. (laughs) (laughs) You could tell me his dad's Spider-Man. I'd go, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, this is sort of my experience with this book, having not been a comic reader, not super familiar with like where these characters exist in the comic world in 2014. I just had to take so much of it and let it roll off my back mm. and just be like, okay, I have to believe you when you say that like, this is the deal with this character right now. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I was, Andrew and I texted about this a little, but like, when Emma Frost shows up, and I'm like, I'm familiar with Emma Frost from the X-Men movies, mm-hmm. vaguely, right? She's in X-Men Origins Wolverine, I think. 
Um, um, first X Men First Class, or maybe big, First Class. Sorry, yeah, yeah you're but right. But no, you're I, right. I think she, I right. think you're also right that she's in that in Wolverine. She's in both, which is crazy. But like, she, I, I'm vaguely familiar with the concept of that character, right? She shows up in this book and she's like, "I'm running the X Men. I live in a secret base. My boyfriend is Cyclops. This is all normal, and we know this, and we accept it." And I was just like, "Okay," just had to be like, "You got it, girl," you know. And there's a lot of that in this book for me, a person who's like mostly just like watched the movies Mm -hmm. and occasionally then been like i'm gonna go on a bender with this character (laughs) right um which just happened to me sort of in confluence with this moment with mr punisher Uh, um but you know just like stuff i was like i don't understand how these characters fit together like i would never in my life as a movie viewer be like "Mm -hmm, benedict cumberbatch is dr strange you know who he should hang out with john bernthal's the punisher that's compelling (laughs) i was just like these characters could never exist on the same (laughs) plane was really hard for me very disorienting i just had to accept early on that these comic book characters were some different version than i'm used to seeing in any sort of screen iteration this nick Mm. fury is Mm -hmm. so different he acts so different than the mcu nick fury which isn't to say that that character couldn't go evil or have a heel turn he just is bitter and angry in a way that the samuel l jackson character I i can't even imagine being there's some there's some stuff they have in common. Uh, I, I I think that it it is interesting that what a different Nick Fury this is because he is this like hundred year old man who fought in World War II, which I think is his comics origin. Uh, I think they were his he was he originated as a character actually in the forties. I could be wrong about that, but um, it reminded me a little of uh, when Samuel L. Jackson Nick Fury is like building his mass surveillance mechanism and his like murder uh, helicarriers in that one Captain America movie. Like they deal with similar moral dilemmas of like I'm spying on everyone in the world and I kill people without telling anyone or thinking about it. Um, but yes, very different <laughs> sort of vibes. Hannah, the thing you said about Emma and that being an example of how things are really confusing, they just suddenly give you all this info (laughs) about a character, I think is one of the strengths of the book. In I want to clarify, it's not confusing within the confines of the book. Well, it is. It's confusing to me as a human It's confusing in the confines of the book because the story it's based on necessitates that you do have a bunch of background info. And Mm -hmm. I Mm. think this book plays both sides in a cool way where for someone who doesn't know anything about superheroes so let me read the the beginning of the first emma frost chapter it says emma frost hadn't been able to sleep one of the problems with being a telepath was that ghosts tended to leak from your sleeping lover's mind even if those ghosts sometimes didn't have the common courtesy to stay dead emma's telepathy was as as disciplined as every other facet of her life but that discipline slipped when she was trying to sleep She was tired of waking up with the dead staring down at her as Scott thrashed in the grip of a nightmare. This is a bunch of information I didn't know one paragraph ago. Emma Frost (laughs) is in a relationship with this guy, Scott. She's a telepath whose defenses can be down because she's sleeping and she feels them lowering. And... Gavin gives that extra little frill of also here's just a sucky thing about being telepathic is that you just hear your lover's thoughts while you're trying to fall asleep it's like info I need and then immediately moving on to also here's a cool writerly thing I came up with I think it's all good I really really do and I think if I was coming into this totally blind with like no concept of these characters he's really good at setting up like here's everything you basically need to know about her 
um, here's like the context mm-hmm. of her so that we can then move on. And he does it for like 30 characters. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty artfully. It never really feels like here's a shit ton of exposition. You know, it's just like we're, we're vibing. And I think he, like each of the little team up groups sort of has a point of view character. I think he's very wise about which character he lands on. Like spending time with Emma as the person who's like, this is crazy. I don't want to be here. This is um, a lot going on. Works really nicely. Being with Mr. the Punisher, who's also like, this is fucking stupid. I don't want to be here. And so, and then like with Bucky, who's like, I, this is crazy. And I feel out of place. Like he has chosen the right character that you want to spend time in their mindset and get their perspective as like um, as a reader, I like I need someone who's like this is cuckoo because mm-hmm. I also feel like it's vaguely mm-hmm. cuckoo, <laughs> you know. Good point of view selections. We don't have anyone on the call who's like a a giant Marvel head, and I did message two dozen <laughs> Marvel content content <laughs> creators to be like this. I know this sounds crazy, but um... <laughs> we need help. Help us. <laughs> so I we don't have the perspective of somebody who knows this stuff really well, but I suspect that this book is also rewarding if you've lived that life because there's little lines in it I don't understand that I'm sure are fun Easter eggs for the knowing. There's a line where a character thinks, I think it's Captain America, he goes, Fury should be taking care of this. The L in S.H.I.E.L.D. stands for law enforcement. I think it does anyway. It did at least until the 90s. And I'm going, that's a joke about the history of Marvel I don't get. (laughs) Um, I do think, yeah, the, the character thing for me is, is one of the, um, one of the most interesting challenges of, of this particular type of adaptation, which I think has not been covered on the podcast before, right? Comic to novel. Um, let it be known. I'm interested in covering any sort of novelization. People who want to do video game novelizations, hit me up. I'm here. There you go. Um, we have covered things that were comic books and then movies and then novelizations. And then we went back and read the Cowboys and Aliens. Yeah. Well, but see that though, comic book to movie, I think is a very natural kind of um, adaptation direction. But uh, I was really, I will say I was feeling this fact that like a, the, a big thing with the superhero comics genre is that you have these like brightly colored, iconic look characters, right? Like everybody wears like a bright costume with like, usually like a symbol on it or something like that, that like tells you about what they are. And it does like... It makes it much easier to introduce 30 characters when you can just have the little caption being like, the Wolverine, yeah. uh, mutant uh, killer with mm-hmm. claws. And like you see, oh, there he is. There's the Wolverine. Um, and I, I think, yeah, um, that this book handles that challenge admirably. Uh, but th- I do think there are parts for me where it is a little, uh, there are a few too many characters for a novel. Uh, and it, it is clear that like- lose track of some of them towards the end. Yeah. Like I feel like towards the end, like Emma is just like, I'm walking out of the story, <laughs> yeah. see you later. Well, and the this the big like secret bomb moment where uh, uh, Watu the Watcher's eye has been removed, reveals everyone's secrets. Uh, you get like these quick little vignettes and it's like Luke Cage. Oh my God. My dad was a superhero in the seventies. Oh, this is changes everything. And it's like, ah, I just, I just met you, Luke Cage. You weren't <laughs> in this book before. Like, You are not one of my 30 main characters right. somehow. <laughs> that moment in which the orb, the, who I guess is a ghost rider villain, they say, uh, the orb. Say if there's anybody who should have villains whose heads are other things, it is ghost rider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should fight the thumb guys from Spy Kids. (laughs) (laughs) 
the the orb who is this this villain who has an eyeball for a head is also dealing in eyeballs. He has the watcher's eye for a lot of the a lot of the story and and There's Johnny put it really well but in this story. What's that? Big eyeball motif in this story. Oh, part. huge. Yeah, yeah. I would say there's a little bit of a running theme. Uh, <laughs> when the orb pulls out the eyeball, as you reference, and, and everyone around him gets secrets jammed into their head, I wrote down that it felt like the Death Star attack from Rogue One. Like, it was this thing where there's just pages and pages of the fallout. It's just, which is great. It's, it's of course, this secret was revealed to this person, and this secret was revealed to this person. And I just, it's such a, I don't know how this is borne out. I don't know whether future comic books explored these secrets in satisfying ways. I have gleaned that Original Sin is not a particularly beloved graphic novel among the Marvel crowd. Mm. And it seems like a lot of the complaints about it are, that secret didn't make sense. That was an annoying retcon. As somebody who doesn't have that background, every one I was going, what? <laughs> I was so into it. <laughs> so you feel like you, though, this was when you were reading the comic? or Yeah, when I was reading the comic. Well, this is this is important to talk about, too. The, the pivotal moment where the eyeball gets pulled out is handled differently in the comic and the graphic novel. I'm sorry, the comic and the prose novelization. And I think makes a great case for novelizations because both are really entertaining. In the graphic novel, certain characters will exclaim the secret that they heard, right? So mm-hmm. Thor will go, I have a sister or whatever. But they don't give you too many. Like they give you three or four. And it leads to a funny and dramatically compelling thing where they go, yeah, Spider-Man just left. We don't know why. <laughs> Which is really funny to me. And it also shows how the eyeball is a potent weapon. Because it just rearranges your priorities to such a staggering degree. Spider-Man yeah. basically realizes that... I don't totally get this, but he realizes that there's another Spider-Person who's being held in captivity. And has been for years and years. And so when the eyeball comes out, he immediately, as opposed to caring about this original sin stuff he just goes i have to go rescue the spider person who's a prisoner there is a level to that part in the prose novelization where most of the characters deeply affected by secrets are none of our main characters Mm -hmm. so they get to just leave this they're like why isn't spider-man sticking around he has a secret it just like (laughs) removes like it's a moment where like everybody's in new york fighting some dudes mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's like 50 superheroes doing this in one moment and then half of them get like blasted by a secret and have to go yeah. and you're like okay we're back to a manageable number of superheroes there's a there's a moment approaching this big moment this big uh eyeball explosion where uh i think it's nick fury is thinking like oh well, he's like on his way to the site and there are two more quinjets with more avengers on the way and that was <laughs> just really struck me as like oh there's like this is like an army of people People, the the Avengers in the comics is like hundreds of friends, <laughs> like, which is just it's interesting because like at this point like what are you are you like a like military organization are you law enforcement like what are the Avengers at the point where there's hundreds of them and they like get sent around I don't know it's it's just very different from what you're I'm getting used to you're getting seeing, pulled like, over movies. for for a tail light and it's it's yeah. Uh, it's Wolverine, and he's he goes. Well, there's not monsters every day, and there's three hundred of us now. 
It really is like an obscene number of superheroes. Yeah, which is commented on a lot in the novel in ways in a way that I find fun. Like they they do uh, mm. like they mention like oh it's like there's kind of too many superheroes here. This is maybe going to be more trouble than it's worth. Like which I think is there's a part very early on where the narration is like Earth really punching above its weight. Why does so much shit happen on <laughs> yeah. Earth? Doesn't make any goddamn sense. <laughs> there's another line. Uh, why do the monsters like New York City so much? Yeah. <laughs> I think if I was living in this version of the Marvel New York, I wouldn't live yeah. there anymore. Like, it's just too dangerous. Yeah. You can't invest in real estate. It'll get blown up immediately. <laughs> the thing about them leaving, too, is that we, when they learn these secrets is it's this heightening. I mean, we're recording a Spider-Man episode later today, so I'm thinking about this. It's a heightening mm-hmm. of the damsel in distress type of thing. We're coming for the people you care about. In, we've seen that a million times in comic book stuff but mm-hmm. to have a device that instead of going i've kidnapped your beloved just goes i'm gonna reveal to you something crucially emotionally important it's great mm-hmm. i'm gonna hurt your feelings it, so i'm gonna hurt bad. your feelings it's a hurt your feelings bomb yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it really weaponizes mm-hmm. the positive aspects of these people they have too much empathy mm-hmm. Sometimes it's revenge. Sometimes they're like, I want to kill the person who wronged me. But a lot of times they just have too much empathy to stay and fight. And they're also, they all love yeah. secrets. They're like, being a superhero, especially in like, comics uh, world, is uh, inherently about being a secretive person who usually lives a double life and lies to people all the time. Like, um, they're very vulnerable mm-hmm. to this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's yeah. like, it. Th- there's a lot of verbiage about that that made me feel like a loser in the book where they go... <laughs> Everyone has secrets. The world is built on secrets, and especially the Avengers. And I was reading that going, I truly don't have them. Are, am I doing it wrong? I really don't have anything that would You're blow my life You're not a superhero. Up. It's totally fine. <laughs> I do really like, not to get on my personal deal today, but no, it's No, let's talk happen. about Frank. Yeah, we have to talk about my favorite character <laughs> in this book, Frank Castle. Um, who doesn't have secrets, doesn't give a shit, is not the type of superhero the rest of these guys are, and is consistently just like, you guys are stupid, let's fucking shoot him. Like, why are we working so hard? Who cares (laughs) about this? Um, In a way that I just adored. And also every single time he like looks at Doctor Strange, he's like, you look like a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Your costume is dumb as hell. Yeah, I'm trying to find the first Frank passage. The Frank passages are so good. On um, 38. 38? I I don't have that. Okay. Page 38. You want to take us there? He's like torturing some dude. (laughs) Like, moment one. That's it. I've told you about every last one of them. The weeping, bloodied, and bruised gangland killer begged. He was tied to a chair in a pool of light in the otherwise dark warehouse. The air was hot and sticky. There was no breeze coming off the Pacific tonight. Frank Castle missed New York. <laughs> You're lying, Frank said. He didn't think this was the case, but it never hurt to double check. Like, just like a fucking guy. What a guy. <laughs> yeah, I liked this line on 74 where uh, they found the... So, <laughs> the plot of this is so strange. But yes, <laughs> Nick Fury has secretly been the man on the wall for a long time, which means that he like hangs out in space and... It stops people from other dimensions, creatures from other dimensions, from killing us. and By just shooting them with a giant gun. <laughs> shoots them with a giant gun and dumps them in an, uh, f- some sort of like field in an interdimensional space. And Doctor Strange and F- Castle find it. And 
uh, they're looking around. They don't know who's done it yet. They think, oh, the serial killer we're looking for. This is his dumping ground. It says, Frank ignored Strange and continued digging around in the large wound with his hands. It was wet inside. The fluid in the hole was the same color as blood, but had a very different consistency. Give me a moment's quiet, Strange said, and I'll divine what sort of spell it was that... Well, now I know why I'm here, Frank said. He could feel something deep in the wound, though the green glow emanating from it wasn't filling him with joy. You and your birds sniff out the bodies, Doc. He managed to get his hands around the object in the wound and yank hard. And I'll find your damn killer for you. He pulled the most perfectly preserved bullet he'd ever seen from the wound. Whatever substance it was made of was incredibly hard. It was a large caliber bullet, but almost the size of a cannon shell. It also glowed bright green. Not good. Frank knew that so-called superheroes hated him, thinking him little better than those he hunted. But they all came running when they needed him. Yeah, love that. I don't know this guy's deal at all, aside from the fact that he hates cops and co- real-world cops love him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's crazy. Loved of cops. <laughs> um, I also want to flag that that chapter that you just read the end of starts with the chapter title, Frank Hates Magic, mm-hmm. and then the very first sentence is, Frank hated that. <laughs> <laughs> makes me laugh he talks about really how funny. it's annoying when dr strange teleports him without his permission and i'm like yeah that sound that is so rude yeah. that's like that would be infuriating yeah. for someone to do that like is frank castle a mass murderer uh-huh but he's not a hypocrite mm-hmm. you know he has his rules he has his point of view and he sticks to it it's interesting also that in that passage you read how much uh this is very much a book about guns in a way that i wasn't expecting like i feel mm. like superhero stuff will often do violence in a way that they'll very pointedly avoid like real world like gun culture and like the mechanics of of firearms uh and this book is very much like grappling with that in a way that is interesting and maybe we can talk about later but yeah i agree uh to the point where you get to the end and nick fury's like who's gonna take over my big gun job and it really seems obvious that there's two people who could do it and it's the gun guys yeah (laughs) You know, like it's not Mr. Clawhands, right? It's not gonna be like, Ant Man, yeah. What, like, <laughs> some of the candidates he invites are crazy choices. No, that's crazy. You know, it's not gonna be like Miss Diamond Skin. Like, the answer is the guys who use giant guns, yeah. and then you choose the one who has like slightly more of a moral compass, who isn't just gonna like kill everything. Yeah. I'm concerned that we're Obvious. not explaining this story well enough because it is not one people are familiar with. Wait, the, right, what I'm we said sorry. before is the gist of it, right? That Nick Fury kills the Watcher in a rage and then bizarrely hires a bunch of Avengers to find who killed the Watcher. And it turns out it's because he is old as fuck and he's been using life model decoys, you know, robots of himself to appear younger and now that he's actually dying he needs someone to be the new man on the wall the guardian against all the other dangers the avengers didn't even know he was he was guarding against with a giant gun but (laughs) when it comes out towards the end of the book that it's essentially a job interview process there is a really funny line where lang ant-man goes so you want me to kill aliens and underground monsters are you sure you've got the right Ant-Man? Lang asked. Don't kid yourself, Lang. You've got it inside of you, even if you're not ready to admit it. I told him, though he was one of the weaker candidates. 
yeah. like there must have been people who he was like, nah, I can't get them. Like he must have tried to include some heavier hitters like, <laughs> before getting down the list to Ant Man. Yeah, Ant Man's like not who I would ever consider. Yeah. You know, like there's a part where he's like, ah, Ben Grimm, one of the best men I've ever met in my life, and therefore unsuited to the world I live in. Can't he wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And it's like yeah, neither would Ant Man. That's a nice little guy, isn't it? That's his whole deal. He's, a, He's like a goofy a little, little guy. Fella. I thought it was so funny that Ben Grimm, the thing, that in the I'm not used to reading thing stuff, and so when I'm doing the gra- when I'm reading the graphic novel, I'm going, this guy Midas looks a lot like the thing. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. going. This yeah. is this is a lazy reusing you know, uh, previous drawings type type of thing. And, uh, <laughs> but I thought the book was, had a good sense of humor about it because every time <laughs> people internally thought of Midas, they were, they're going, he just looked like a really fucked up version of the thing. God, he looked like the <laughs> thing had a disease. So like mushy. I think Dr. Midas, he, he's, they say he, I had not heard of Dr. Midas, but they, they say he, he, okay. When he like tried to get all the powers of the Fantastic Four, so I think he has the same origin as the thing. Oh wow! Like. Wow! Yeah. And I'm a fool, and I'm a fool for it. It is kind of interesting that like cosmic rays will do one of four things to you, and one of them is make you look like that. <laughs> like, hey, one of five things. It may also turn you into a melty metal man yeah. or whatever is happening with Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was sad not to have any Dr. Doom in here. He's he's one of my favorite Marvel guys. I feel like he would be well-suited to this story. But maybe <laughs> Another it's guy who'd much... be like, I have my own stuff going on. Yeah. Too similar to yeah. Dr. Midas, maybe, who they're really, mm. is like one of, the, one of the villains of this story. So they really have to set up, set up who he is. Short, short mm. diversion here. But uh, as everyone knows who listens to the podcast, I've been listening to the entire Dark Tower series. And uh, yeah, you are all right. It gets very strange. At one point, uh, there's a whole book where they're defending, like a, it's a western, and they're like getting ready to defend the children of the town against like a rival town of it feels like pedophiles, and then who are gonna ride in and take them. And uh, the guys ride in, and they're all dressed like Doctor Doom, and they all have <laughs> lightsabers. <laughs> and they all talk about Harry Potter. And this book doesn't take place on Earth. So, yeah, it's getting strange um, and I don't I don't really know. I don't really like it. <laughs> like they're dr- they're dressed like Doctor Doom on purpose. Yeah, they look exactly like Doctor Doom and they're wielding working lightsabers, yeah. Huh. Yeah. That mm. is strange. Curious. Really weird. Anyway, mm. the watcher. Is he the guy that people would joke that good old Stan was playing in the MCU. Yes, yeah, he's um, mm. yeah, Watu yeah, the Watcher. So. He's like the he's the main Watcher guy. So that that, that was yeah, the, that running thing of like, oh, what if it find, turns out that Stan is him? Uh, and then I think they ended up going with he like works for the Watchers in one of the one of those post credits things way better call mm. because yeah. i always assumed that the watcher because people had this theory was a jokester <laughs> no he's so <laughs> solemn he couldn't be more serious <laughs> every stand appearance appearances he's like you know they'll be like at a at a stoplight and he'll turn to iron man in the next car and go 
you go when it's green, dummy. It's like, if he turned out to be Uatu, the Watcher. I was not familiar with the concept of the Watchers at all. And from the descriptions in this book, I was like, ah, yes, Dr. Manhattan from The Watchmen. (laughs) And then when I opened the graphic novel, I was like, damn, their head's big. (laughs) Like a totally different physical shape than I had been imagining. Um, it is very funny to imagine when in, in this comic the watcher will like appear to people during like dire universe changing moments it's funny to imagine like nick fury on the floor of the satellite about to die and the watcher looming over him being like hang in there fella excelsior <laughs> <laughs> the watcher uh is the one dispersing the secrets he's like he shows up to you and he's just like did you know wolverine killed his own kids once pretty weird <laughs> Like that, huh? The Watcher. Just uh, going back to right. the very beginning Watcher. of the graphic novel. The the Nova part mm-hmm. of the graphic novel has this backstory about the Watcher giving a civilization nuclear capability. Yes. Very Star Trek. That sounds fucked up. Super Star Trek, and and it it wipes them out, of course. And <laughs> who could have seen that coming? It really clarifies that the Watcher used to be a bit of a doer. Pivoted. He pivoted to watching. Sometimes you learn a lesson, <laughs> and you stop doing the thing you were doing. Yeah, yeah. That Nova backstory really did change my uh, perspective on the Watcher because I read the book first, uh, the novelization first. Um, it's a I thought is maybe a little too tidy of a backstory. His pivot is like when he's like, "Oh, I sh- now now that this civilization has died, I am now cursed to watch everything forever and never do anything about any of it." And I felt like that was like a little quick for you to come to such an extreme uh, life path. but There's some narrative convenience in a few aspects of the graphic novel, like Nick Fury yells at the Watcher so much about, why don't you ever do anything, you dirty, bald bastard? And <laughs> he, the Watcher does talk. It feels like he should show him a slideshow of the time he gave a planet nuclear capability or something. Like it's it's It, it feels... He's like he's working against his own interests in not even communicating sometimes. And I felt that a little bit too when the eyeball came out and no one saw the secret that Nick Fury is the man on the wall who shot the Watcher. He's going, oh, right, because we have yeah. 50 pages left. <laughs> There's also like that complicated element where the Nick Fury present at that moment is like, how come I didn't get a secret? <laughs> like because you're a robot but like i thought it revealed it's because you're a robot but you know you're a robot so wouldn't you know that's why you didn't get a secret oh interesting i think i didn't think about in the moment and i was like "Ooh, another fun element of mystery and then i was like oh it's because he's a robot wait so when we're getting that first person perspective that's sometimes Mm. a robot talking i don't believe so because he doesn't... Nick Fury isn't in, like, a VR headset controlling the robots, like, Ready Player One. <laughs> I wish right? he was. They, they're AI. Yeah. So when he's out there at, like, steak night with his superhero friends, that's a robot. That's a robot. Yeah. So our narrator is sometimes a robot. No, okay, no, I see. Never mind, never mind. When he's using the I, the first-person voice, that's the real Nick Fury. Right. Yeah. I think so. We haven't explicitly said this at all, so Bucky at one point chops off 
Nick Fury's head, and we're supposed to yeah, go. That's very intense. We're supposed to go. Oh, he must have killed the Watcher. He's doing another murder. He's at it again. And then it turns <laughs> out that he knew it was a robot Fury, and then we learn that he uses all these young Nick Fury robots to still be in his prime. Another really funny failure of communication is like Bucky does this, and then like immediately flees the scene. Everyone else shows up and is like, "Who did this? This is terrible." No one has the answer, even though, like, three people saw Bucky do it. They show up finally, Bucky's, like, holding a bloody yeah. head. And he, like, won't say, don't worry, it was a robot. Oh, yeah. I, this is a, I get so frustrated sometimes by this narrative trope, where it'll be like, no, just give me a moment to explain. If you only let me explain what's going on here, I, everything would be normal. Oh, but you didn't give me time to explain, and now we're in a fight for, like, five or six minutes, and then I'm gonna say, hey, it was a robot. <laughs> yeah speaking of the life model decoys i really mm-hmm. like this bit of fury first person storytelling on 183 where it says so one of his life model decoys died and he goes oh which one which one died and one of the other ones says you called him marty sir the new guy said it had been years since i'd felt weird dealing with my life model decoys as subordinates right marty was a good one it was however odd how they'd all become kind of individual. Or maybe it wasn't. Their programming was pretty sophisticated. They were supposed to learn from their experiences and be able to pass, convincingly, not just as humans, but as me if they needed to. More than once, a life model decoy had been the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a day while I was busy with my other activities. As the Infinity Formula had started to fail and I'd started to age, The life model decoys had taken over my real-world responsibilities more and more, but I'm getting ahead of myself. This is a cool idea. It's like, their very use is to impersonate me and thus do my duty. And unfortunately, that also means they develop personalities because I'm having them have experiences. Yeah, a funny twist that the novel pulls on you is like that opening chapter... Where they're like, we don't know who these people are, but one of them is named yeah. Andrew. Mm-hmm. And then later mm-hmm. you're like, oh, Andrew is a fake Nick Fury. Here we go. <laughs> Putting the pieces together in hindsight. Um, just tricky, tricky little tricks. That is really good. And it also made me that think, as someone named Andrew, is there no one in this <laughs> thousand character universe named Andrew? That seems impossible does it don't you they've think? got like three scots and four bruces like <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's oh, i know true. that's true well there is now um a robot copy well i just Fury. googled um superhero named andrew <laughs> and it seems that in the marvel hold on hold on there's a ranker article fictional characters named andrew <laughs> but one of the first Marvel characters who shows up is Andrew McGuire, who went to high school with Peter Parker and, I don't know, has some kind of energy superpower, I think. Huh. So there's one. <laughs> so there's one. <laughs> but he goes by Andy. Seems like people call him Andy more than Andrew. Huh. So. Do you ever go by Andy as a kid? No, I didn't. I, I, I very vocally at like age five was like i'm just full name don't do any of that other stuff to me Mm. i don't i have some respect for the drews of the world yeah drew's Mm. a totally different name you can be a drew it's a totally different type of guy uh andy's uh let's let's pull up our pants let's let's go to work you know (laughs) okay we're jumping all around here but the watcher who i'm just obsessed with yeah 
love this watcher. Great, great passage on the watcher in the first chapter. It says, uh, The watcher had seen all that there ever was, and yet, with each new day, he found himself full of anticipation over what he might see next. His sense of wonder did not just stem from the great events of the mighty, the events that shook the very pillars of the earth. In fact, in some ways, such days were the least of it. Instead, a newborn's first breath, the caress of a lover, tears wrought of remembrance in the twilight of a life, each and every moment was utterly unique, something he had never seen before. He knew that those few humans who knew him considered him voyeuristic, but did they even truly appreciate their own lives, moment to moment, in the way he did? The few who knew him thought his life one of solitude, of isolation, not understanding that he was only alone with all of seething humanity in all their filth and splendor. I liked knowing that mm. the Watcher has a really nice internal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He to watch. He's keeping busy up there. Also, it's fucking crazy at the end of the book when they're like, oh yeah, the Watcher's wife is here. Like, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> that threw me for a loop. They're definitely estranged, right? They're not like together. <laughs> I, I don't know. She seems sad that he's <laughs> dead. Yeah, yeah. In the graphic novel, she just like appears and it's like, oh, a lady watcher, and she's like, goodbye, Watu. Like, oh my god, a married man. <laughs> Never saw that coming. Yeah, of course you're not lonely. You go home to your wife on the weekends. <laughs> Tell her about your week. That's what he's doing when he's uploading and meditating. Uh, let me just mention this before I, before I move on to uh, like uh, sort of meteor stuff. It's funny how many times Gavin will hang a lampshade on the fact that comic book characters talk to themselves. Did you guys pick up on that? Wait, go on. (laughs) Okay, well, I've got, I think, ten examples. I guess I didn't. Page 106, (laughs) it says, um, A bunch of dead monsters buried in the center of the Earth. What does that have to do with the Watcher being shot on the moon? She asked the question just to get her thought processes rolling, regardless of how obvious it might sound. Assumptions of knowledge led to failure. I was like, okay, yeah, that's true. In the graphic novel, she just said that aloud to no one. That's a great point. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Then on 120, this isn't a dig. It literally had me laughing. I was like, what a funny nod to the fact that you're adapting. You know, because even though this is a book... This really made me realize, like, novelizations of graphic novels share a lot of DNA with novelizations of films because you are still trying to take the visual mm-hmm. and put it through the prose lens. 120, it says, Bucky knelt to check out the craters. Did our killer wipe out an entire civilization? Is that what we're looking at here? It seemed that Spectre was planning to give voice to every single thought that ran through his gray matter. I have, like, eight of them. And then there's a very f- cool one. So this is a situation where someone is watching someone else through, like, a dream or time travel or something, uh, you know, seeing their memory. And it says, uh, you saw it all back then, didn't you? Even this, I bet. The orb wasn't sure to to whom Fury was talking. Himself? The ghost of the Watcher? The eyes that Fury held in either hand? Or was Fury talking to him, the orb? Did he know? After all, he could surely see as well as the orb could. Interesting, he thought. I thought that was great. He spends so much time, so many instances going, yeah, this is another line that somebody just says out loud alone. Weird, right? And then 
the orb is viewing a memory and he goes maybe he said that out loud because he has the eye and he knows i'll watch with the eye later that's a very fun development on the sort of like voyeurism theme of this also that like you you the reader are reading a comic book kind of being like why did that character say that out loud and you you know really it's like oh he's talking to me yeah, yes. the reader like he's saying it for my benefit which that feels very like a little play on that yeah it 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 feels like the novelization version of when a movie recreates a graphic novel panel in like the way it frames a shot this mm-hmm. is going you know like in graphic novels. Come on, you know. <laughs> there, the, that concept of nesting is also interesting, where the eye makes you so omniscient that you're able to see future uses of the eye, and so he's able to like interact with mm. future versions of, of characters. Uh, I felt the same way in... I, I want to go more in depth on the secrets moment of the eye coming out and everyone having their individual secret yeah. but hulk gets a secret that tony stark terribly betrayed him and tony stark only gets the secret that that is now known by hulk which is technically now a secret <laughs> that's also that's happening right now in the present tense he's getting a vision of the present like not a past secret a current secret Look, we haven't seen it happen, but I don't think it's off the board for us to get visions of future secrets with the eye. It's just no, a secrets yeah. ball. To, to, <laughs> I, I feel like we should, we should clarify for the listener. It's not, there's, you're not like missing something that makes it make perfect sense. It doesn't make total sense. But basically the, the, watcher, the watcher's eyes are sort of biological like computer storage devices where he like has, or it's more like magic than that. But they're like, uh, all, of the, all of his stuff is stored in his eyes. And so this guy, the orb... Is, who's a villain with an eye for a head, is able to sort of turn the Watcher's eye into what he calls a secret bomb. Or maybe that's just, uh, Gavin calls it that, which I, I like that turn of phrase. And then that explodes, and that's why, that's what we've been talking about. That, that somehow the, the Watcher's actual eyeball, pulled from his skull, uh, becomes this device that broadcasts secrets into your head when you, when you activate it. Very fun. I like that kind of thing where it's like, oh, this, like, just like how the Watcher is clearly like a narrative device... Like, this this person has literally turned his eye into a narrative, like, a literary device that he's now weaponizing against the characters. I thought that, that was an interesting concept. I'm finding the moment he does it. There's an amazing Nick Fury thing. So on 87, uh, he's about to, the, the orb is about to pull out the Watcher's eye. Uh, Nick says, whatever the hell this is, it's finished. You're murderers and you're all going down. He's kind of going crazy. Uh, He was just glad that it was no longer his responsibility to stop Dr. Midas talking about his involvement with S.H.I.E.L.D. Put the eye down and step away, Steve ordered the masked figure. This is when the orb still has a mask on. No, no, I don't think so. See, we're not the murderers you're looking for, and this is not an eye anymore. It's a bomb, the hooded figure told them. Later, Fury would come to reflect that this was the time he should have shot the guy, which is a great line because he's saying, because I have things to hide, because this eventually leads to Mm. my secrets coming out. But in the moment, it's because this is the guy who shot the Watcher. This is the villain. This is also a robot, though. This is a robot copy of the villain. I don't know. That's not really relevant. I just thought it was interesting. (laughs) The eye started to glow, a bomb full of secrets. And what do bombs do? He pulled the hood off. It was a significant anticlimax. 
Under the hood was a huge eyeball where a head should be. Fury vaguely remembered that this guy was a Z-list supervillain called the Orb. The wind picked up, and lightning played all around the Watcher's eye, its nerve endings whipping around as though grasping for something. They go boom, the Orb said. Then he changed the world. That's a great sentence to end a chapter on. I'm not sure it's exactly true. Yes! <laughs> he definitely changed the, the, the dynamics of this big friend group. <laughs> that is forever changed. <laughs> yeah. It's so fun to be like, the Avengers are just like a hundred best friends. <laughs> and then somewhere towards the end, I think it's Steve is like, are these people even my fucking friends anymore? Like, I don't even know them. Oh. They're full of secrets. Yeah. Do they even... Are we even friends? Well, Steve has the craziest secret revealed, I think, of all. If we were to secret oh, break, yeah. uh, let's let's walk through these secrets. So, mm. 93, okay. we get Love this. Nova's secret, uh, which, what was it again in this context? Uh, his dad did a murder, and he feels bad about it. Sam realizes that his dad murdered someone. Um, I have a stupid question. Are the Nova Corps what Captain Marvel is part of in her movie before she realizes they're bad and goes to become her own hero? I think they might be. Are they the guys from Guardians of the Galaxy? Like, is John C. Riley in the Nova Corps? Oh. Look that up. Uh, time to do some Googling. <laughs> the next secret we get is, of course, Ben Grimm, the thing. And his, mm-hmm. his secret uh-huh. culminates with, because... They're doing an experiment on him to try to turn him back into a not thing. And it says, read. Right. Which he always wants. He he does not like It looks uncomfortable, if we're being honest. Sorry, Glenn Close and, and John C. Riley are, they are the Nova Corps in Guardians of God, the huh. Galaxy. So that's who they okay. are in the Reed, with Johnny's help, finally managed to stabilize his form. But Ben had become the thing once more. He remembered how wretched he had felt. Now seeing it through Johnny's eyes... He realized it was worse than even he had thought. Ben felt sick as Johnny confessed to Reed that he had messed with the chamber, thrown the calibration out. Reed had read him the riot act, but in the end, they kept Johnny's involvement from Ben. In the end, his teammate had screwed him over, taken away his chance to live a normal life. Johnny could never understand it. He loved being the human torch, even when it hurt people. He didn't want to be normal, but it was all Ben wanted. It was everything, and Johnny had prevented it. And worse, Reed, Ben's best friend, had lied to keep his brother-in-law's secret, a two-for-one betrayal. If we're ranking these betrayals, it's it's easy to get caught up on the fact that the Hulk became the Hulk because Tony Stark messed with the bomb and tried to make the bomb better, mm-hmm. and then that hulked him out. That's at least an accident. This one is so bad. Wait, did Johnny do it on purpose? It seems like it, right? They just say he changed the calibration. I yeah, he was like tinkering with it in a way that like he definitely should not. And I don't have think been. he's like a scientist. <laughs> I agree. I don't. I mean, I have a hard time believing that it was like a malicious tinkering. He just kind of like he he went in there. He emits fire radiation, and that mm. probably fucked up the equipment. And then it didn't work. I really like that insight into the different attitudes that people have about being a superhero. You know, he. The Human Torch mm-hmm. loves being the Human Torch. He has the type of personality where he wants to be a hero, and also his version of mutation is cool. And he can stop being on fire when he wants right, to be. Right, right, yep. exactly. 
Grimm is just like you could ne- he could never understand my situation. Big difference between being a thing forever. I feel like that's a big like X-Men thing that like some of you got cool powers and some of you have to look like a monster. The uh, Luke Cage one is he saw his father as a young man with a mustache and a full head of hair long before what was left had turned white. He wore a black t-shirt and a leather coat, a magnum held out like he was on the cover of a pulp novel. It was a moment before Luke recognized a younger Adam Brashear, the Blue Marvel himself. Without all the dark clothes, it was only the trademark stakes that gave away the near-ageless blade. The vampire hunter's afro was a statement. Luke didn't recognize either of the women. One looked hard as nails, the other was a more glamorous-looking blonde, both beautiful. Nor did he recognize the red-clad, semi-demonic-looking sorceress type with the outrageous collar. Luke assumed he was the villain of the piece. There was something of the sorcerer about him. The clothes, the style, the whole thing was like a montage from a 70s action flick had been thrust into his skull. It was little more than a collage of moving pictures. There was not much in the way of context, but the connecting point between them all was his father. Even without context, this would have been more than cool his father running his own team of heroes in the 70s. There was just one problem. His father had made clear the disdain in which he held Luke's own vocation and lifestyle. He'd always had a difficult relationship with his father. Proof that he was a hypocrite only served to deepen the resentment. As you say, Hannah, a hurt my feelings bomb. Big time. (laughs) Not an actionable secret. Can't do anything with that. Just gotta be sad. Just gotta go think about it. Some of these secrets, though... I, I some of these diversions I feel like don't belong in this story. I, I don't. I I'm. It's fun to hear about what happened with Luke Cage's dad and Nova's dad, but like they're not characters in this story. I think it goes a little long on the like the people who aren't our our focus here. Like if this was a Luke Cage story, that would yeah. be more interesting to me. Um. So like I I do kind of prefer the ones where it's like, oh, okay, you sort of know who the Hulk is. What you sort of know who Tony Stark is. Oh, it turns out Tony Stark caused the Hulk becoming the Hulk. Um, I can sort of get that quickly. It, it's a little weird to me when it's like, okay, so Luke Cage, uh, he has a flashback and he's like, oh, I recognize Blade. Oh, I recognize that guy. That's this other character. Oh, here's this guy. It, it is a little bit like, ah, I don't know. I get, I get a little bogged down in all these secrets. I agree with you, John. And I feel like these secrets are like interesting in their own mm-hmm. right, right? But like none of them have a strong impact on the story. Right. Like, even the Hulk Iron Man one just means that they stop being in scenes together. Because <laughs> everyone else is like, we should keep them separated. Um, but, like, mostly, I kind of would like secrets where then it, like, hit the characters in a way that, like, they then were like, do I even want to continue mm-hmm. fighting for the good of the world or whatever? <laughs> like, even Thor's secret where he's like, oh, I have a sister and it's a whole fucking thing. He still shows up in the final battle to, like, do punching you know it doesn't really affect his like day-to-day business he gets a second secret too do we know what the secret that there's a nick fury gives him a secret the old-fashioned way by whispering it (laughs) and it really (laughs) devastates him he does a little lost in translation on him at the end (laughs) yeah i don't think we hear what that is but it does somehow make him unworthy of the hammer knowing that secret which is confusing to me do we get anything more on that in the I was hoping novel? somebody would go, oh, we, you missed when they revealed that. Because I was thinking the same thing. He just <laughs> yeah, gets whispered to and he goes, I can't pick up Hammer no more. Um, 
Um, I love uh, the description of the novel at the end of him. It's in sort of an epilogue thing. And it's like, there's Thor on the moon, like tears streaming down his face, straining every muscle in his body, struggling to pick up the hammer. Um, That was one where I was like, oh, I bet that's a great panel in the graphic novel. But then in the graphic novel, Mm -hmm. I I do, I find this artist, uh, I find their character work a little stiff, I will say. Um, I I often, I want a little more like, like I was picturing like close up on Thor, bulging neck, tears streaming. And it's just, it feels a little bit like a 3D model that was set up and then traced over as a comic mm-hmm. book character. I will say flipping through the graphic novel, I was like, I don't know if I can tell the difference like at a glance between like Bucky and the Punisher. Yeah, you know? right, right. Like same body type, same hairstyle. It's not at a glance easy to know who I'm looking at. at Which all with times. superheroes, it really should be. I feel like that's sort of the whole point yeah. with superheroes. That's why they wear like the costumes <laughs> is because it's like, oh, it's fun, memorable images. I know what they look like. But, yeah. Thor cried out silently into the vacuum as the spacecraft soared overhead. His tears had frozen to his cheeks. Every single one of his muscles was strained to the point of tearing. As he tried to lift Mjolnir, the hammer that he was no longer fit to wield from the surface of the moon, this was also observed. Good. Love the moon stuff on this, when they're like, the man in the moon and his secrets. I think that this is also a strength of the book, is that I'm being that annoying friend to every criticism you guys lob. I go, but it's that's the what's good about it. So <laughs> I think it's great that the graphic. I agree. I'm not in love with the graphic novel's art style. I think it's great that the novelization highlights things that aren't inherently highlighted. You know, making it so mm-hmm. that if you're some crazy person who's doing what I'm doing, which is reading both, I get a little bit from each <laughs> one that I wouldn't get from the other. I also think that the fact that the secrets don't impact the story is what's good because the point of the eye as a weapon is to reprioritize your life to be like oh i don't really care about stopping this bank robbery because i have to go stop a genocide i didn't know about underground you know like but is it but is it important that like blade was there and he has an afro <laughs> i feel like there's a lot of detail in all these secret revealing is the reason scenes. that blade isn't included in the job interview because his only priority is vampires <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I thought Gamora was a bad choice, too. She's not from Earth. Why would she care? She's like, why? No, I don't want this job. Oh, (laughs) there's a wonderful line in the book where Nick Fury is explaining his motivations. And he goes, sometimes you have to kill people to protect the Earth. Sometimes it's necessary for some to die. He looked over at Gamora and realized he sounded a lot like her dad. She didn't like it. (laughs) <laughs> or dad Thanos. Yeah, yeah. To be clear, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Continuing on with the secrets, the Hulk one we've kind of talked about. Tony Stark is like, I think I can make the bomb better, make the blast radius bigger. Yeah. He messes up the bomb. He turns Bruce Banner into the Hulk. And they talk about that this was like during a time of his his alcoholism, like really ruling his life. And it, it, it this one is pretty bad. It seems like Tony Stark literally like drunkenly went to the lab. Yeah and fucked up the gamma bomb experiment. So, like, irresponsible. This one made me really go, I wasn't so bad when I drank. Yeah, you you never blew anyone up. Yeah, you didn't turn anybody into a Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) Not anywhere where jurisdiction would apply. The Captain America one. 
Worst, that's the, yeah, that's the biggest, that's the biggest secret. That's the worst one, if we're ranking the secrets. So, uh, what's the gist of it again, John? So, basically, there, there's this uh, team of superheroes called the Illuminati, uh, which I like that Gavin throws in a little thing where it's like, uh, they knew they were the subject of the types of conspiracy theories people had about superheroes, and those conspiracy theories were true. Um, <laughs> basically, like, the Illuminati is like these smart superheroes who who... They find out that there's a these two multiverses are going to crash into each other. Like this alternate universe is going to crash into our universe and kill everything. And 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 they mm-hmm. they decide they need to annihilate this other universe um, and kill everyone in it to save our universe. And Captain America is like, no, we can't do that. That's the worst thing anyone's ever said. Um, <laughs> you're worse than the Nazis who I fought in World War II. And basically, <laughs> Doctor Strange uses his magic to erase Captain America's memory so that they can go on and, and kill this uh, other timeline. And this one I like because it does time... It, this is sort of the whole theme, this whole like moral yes. dilemma that is where, where uh, the Watcher and Nick Fury are these sort of foils of each other of like, okay, how do you react when you see something like this? Um, so that, even though it, Captain America is not really a main character... I thought this kind of thing, hey, okay, this works well, because it involves a lot of our main characters, and it involves the main theme of the story. Uh, Big betrayal. I mean, Captain America's secret is that there is a secret, and that, I mean, it affects him later in the story when he shows up to fight Nick Fury, and he's like, I can't believe I ever trusted you. Mm -hmm. Like, I really put my faith in you, and my secret has now meaningfully changed our relationship interactions and how I'm going to handle fighting you now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so that i agree john this secret worked for me and nice mr captain america is like we shouldn't kill whole universes yeah, right. like what a what a chance yeah, as you say john i mean it, it it really applies to the themes of the story and then also it just disqualifies captain america from taking nick fury's mantle as the man on the well, wall. Well, he's he's like the opposite of the man on the wall is what Nick Fury's always talking about of like he always kind of resents that he Steve gets to be Captain America, like he gets to be the the pretty hero boy. Um and Nick Fury has to be not making the, the hard yeah, choices. Exactly. Which I do think the uh novel is a little harder on Nick Fury for his Nick Fury is very a little up his own ass about like, "Oh, I'm a monster, but I'm a necessary monster." And I I do like <laughs> That, that there's a little more of that uh, moral dilemma. Or, I don't know, I guess I, I also didn't read the comic super thoroughly. I mostly read the book. So, is that is that moral dilemma equally grappled with in the in the graphic novel, would you say, Andrew? What, how do you mean? What, which, which moral dilemma? Like, do they sort of present both sides of the, like, is Nick Fury a monster or is he a hero? Is he necessary? No, or it's is he, very like... anti-Nick Fury, and I, I, I think okay. even more so in the graphic novel because the graphic novel oh, okay. doesn't have the first person perspective of anyone and so we're seeing all of these actions in a third person way so when nick fury starts acting really strange and shooting everyone in space you're just very (laughs) allied with the people going why are you doing this can you say (laughs) what you so i think that he comes off even crazier in the graphic novel uh, and I, I still don't totally understand why he had to be shooting everyone before he got to the point where he went, hey, this has been a job interview the whole time. Who wants at it? He is also cosmically punished uh, in a very, uh, 
I thought sort of Jacob Marley-esque way, the guy from A Christmas Carol. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, these are the chains I forged in life. Uh, he, he is... What's up with his punishment at the end? Is that from The Watcher? Is that... Why is he chained to the moon? My understanding, and I could be totally wrong. My understanding, because he's, he becomes the unseen. I thought he was always the uh, unseen. Because he's doing all these crimes in the background. I was kind of confused what the unseen is. Yeah. Yeah, that's not clear to me. He's the man on the wall is what he calls that, not the unseen, right? But I guess when people talk about the unseen, they're like, what's going on with that thing? And my impression was that it was, you know, the behind the scenes mass genocides that he's doing. And I was like, what's up with there's something happening over there, but we just can't see it. It's the unseen. We see the unseen. Yeah, I don't feel that I totally understand the unseen. I honestly thought that Nick Fury shot the Watcher and the Watcher was kind of thinking, you know what? This makes sense. And he like became the Watcher and then Bucky took his mantle. Like they backfilled oh. the Watcher position and then they backfilled. But he has a, a chain <laughs> forged by from a dying star or whatever. Like he's chained to the moon. He is like... He must. He he can't. He couldn't interfere if he wanted to. I feel like it's it's much more of like a a punishment. You're probably totally right. I I I think I think my understanding of this was maybe a little too pat. I was like, and then he's the unseen, and let's get out of here. He now he watches it all. Okay, <laughs> it's like a Gandalf the White situation. It's like, all right, you get promoted to this guy's job, and you're good. Like, There's man. so much stuff in this book. Is there anything else that you guys really wanted to hit? No, most of my notes are about Mr. Punisher, and I'll just keep those to myself. <laughs> I mean, what's his deal? I am legitimately curious. Um, he's a guy who uh, was like a soldier or a cop, depending on, I think, what version you're looking at, whose whole family gets murdered, and he's like really pissed about it. So he goes on like a crazy revenge spree and kills like a shit ton of people, and then is like, um, I'm going to keep doing that. But it includes a lot of, it's like, it includes like law enforcement. It's just whoever he deems to be. So anytime there's somebody who's like not getting justice, he's like, I'm going to go get justice. Yes. I think he's just, he's beloved by law enforcement and like all right people because he's, he's very into, like, he's very, gu- he's very into guns. He's like a big gun guy. Yeah. And he's like, he, he always has like a big Huge gun and he's going around shooting bad guys. Um, I think that's the, the sort of yeah. connection. He, he's like the nightmare version of a vigilante where you're like, you don't want this guy on the streets with like a bunch of giant <laughs> yeah. guns killing at whim, which is what he does. And I will say, Nick Fury, what the hell were you thinking? Like, I think almost all of his candidates are should have been immediately disqualified. You were going to give the Punisher the keys to your, your space gun? He's going to kill everybody. It's going to be terrible. Given that Nick Fury is like... Already killing everyone yeah. with impunity in space, right? I actually think the Punisher is a pretty decent choice. Except I don't think Mr. Punisher has any interest in, like, galactic no, yeah. safety. He's, like, killing drug dealers and human traffickers and, like, rapists yeah. and, like, crooked cops. Like, that's his deal. And so to be like, do you want to kill space things? And Mr. Punisher's <laughs> like, fuck no. No. You know, like, no, not his scale, not his scope, but he does have a giganto gun. And I really like every time this book is like, his gun was fucking huge. <laughs> He's like carrying around like a 
like harpoon rifle, which is ideal. They keep going like it it was a gun essentially meant to be mounted on something, but he carries it like it is an aimable rifle. Yeah. That shit rips, dude. Like, I want to clarify for the listener. Um, obviously, Mr. Punisher bad, but also in a fictional context, Mr. Punisher absolutely rips. He just fucking rules. He's cool as hell. And unfortunately, that like skull chest logo also fucking really rips. Cool. Like it looks yeah, cool I as mean, hell, and I'm so mad. Those things they don't become popular if they're not like it's it's great graphic design. It really, he's just like a cool looking guy with a big ass gun <laughs> who shoots people. I don't know. This, this one Frank passage st- stuck um, out to me when they're in the dumping ground for all the Nick Fury's alien corpses. Uh, which, by the way, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. passages in this book that are really funny where they're describing the threats to Earth, and they go, "He was watching into another dimension where hog people." With the yes. sat at a table and discussed <laughs> invading Earth with their snouts or what what have you. <laughs> I like the very end one where Bucky's like lizard guys. Yeah. I'm gonna take their tech though. Pretty cool yeah. lizard tech. In a please, this is the Bucky one. It's just as we have heard the reptile said. This is Bucky watching an alien race. Uh, the LMDs back at the satellite had managed to break the reptile's encryption with stolen scroll code breaking software. This enabled Bucky to listen in on the cross-reality communications. The visual feed from the drone showed a powerfully built humanoid dinosaur. He was riding a gravitational sled that doubled as a sophisticated sensor array. He was the point man, point lizard, for an invasion fleet from a Type 2 Kardashev civilization from an alternate universe. The reptile civilization had harnessed the power of their own sun, to skip across alternate realities and sack them like dinosaur vikings. Not on my watch, Bucky thought, and then permitted himself a grim smile. See, like, I think the difference between Bucky and the Punisher, as I think the only two realistic candidates for this Mm -hmm. job, are that Bucky will do a preemptive murder, and I think the Punisher wouldn't. I think he would have to wait for the crime to be committed and then be like, that's (laughs) fucked up. I actually, I think that's the difference there. Um, Black Panther is another candidate. I feel like he'd be he'd be good at it, but it's just like again, kind of like with Gamora. It's like he's got his own stuff. He's not. Oh sure. Oh yeah. He's so busy. Yeah. There's not enough hours in the day. <laughs> he seems super busy. This and this book makes it very clear that Black Panther is like not just busy with like his country. He's busy with like underground mm-hmm. stuff. He's busy with like space stuff. He's like busy. Like, he's already protecting the the whole world on his own level. Like, to add another level to that, that's just too much. You're going to get burnt out. There's a, there's a moment where Nick Fury is, like, looking at Black Panther, and he's like, he could tell he was he was testing his not unlimited patience. And it's like, yeah, Nick, you've been telling a flashback story for, like, 15 pages now. <laughs> Black Panther has stuff to do. And a flashback do. story that doesn't seem super relevant. It's very initially. detailed, yeah. <laughs> It is so funny every time he cuts out of his flashback <laughs> yep. story and the rest of them are just like, okay, <laughs> like, and? Can I, I made a note of the list of the people who are, so Nick Fury tells this story about his whole past, his whole deal, and just everybody's standing up, no one sits down or anything, but he's telling this story to Black Panther, Emma Frost, The Punisher, Doctor Strange, The Orb, Gamora, Moon Knight, Rocket Raccoon, and The Winter Soldier. They're all just standing in a circle while Nick is like, yeah, so it all started back in Kansas in the 50s. Uh, there was this alien invasion. <laughs> like... And they're all just like, why are we in fucking space? 
It's really like at this point, Nick Curry's like, I'm a grandpa, I'm old as fuck, and I'm going to tell you a grandpa yeah. story, and it's going to take forever, <laughs> and you simply have to listen. And they do. Yeah, and it's it's not like they have evolving interest in a story. They, they don't go, oh, and where was that man McCord from? Who replaced him? Oh, it was you? It's every time they cut back from his monologue, they're going, who shot the watcher, Nick? <laughs> He's so clumsily dodging the question, too. Like, uh, Black Panther especially is always like, who killed the Watcher? And he's like, well, it's funny you should ask that, because it's not actually really so easy to say. <laughs> it's like, it is so easy to say. I have, My final question is, why did Nick Fury at one point have to take a giant gun and shoot a sentient planet to death? Oh, wait, sorry. I also, it was going to eat somebody yeah, else. It was going to eat I wanna us. Say, I want to say, I criticized Probably. the art style earlier, um, but moments like that, and also the uh, interdimensional dumping ground for corpses, beautiful art. I loved the uh, the dead planet uh, that Nick Fury had murdered. Um, looks yeah, so cool. That's an evocative um, image. Yeah, I think it was just, it was an insane planet that had to be put yeah. down. There's all, I mean... There's all sorts of planet size threats yeah. in the Marvel universe, right? That are like sentient planets who want to eat or whatever. Yeah. I want to I wanna highlight one more Frank Castle mm-hmm. passage for Andrew's benefit. And then uh, we can move away from Mr. The Punisher, <laughs> my best friend. <laughs> I really just like went down a hole in the past few weeks. No, no, I wanted to. I, I, I saw you logging all those on Letterboxd. And I was like, we're all going to be coming in here with like, so little perspective being like there's a guy named nick fury i learned and then he was bad i guess that it's nice that you know a thing <laughs> i mean hey look i'm a crazy person this is simply a fact about me so i watched the t i watched the first season of the tv show of the punisher and i was like i would love to spend more time with mr the punisher and then i did and i ordered some comics like a sicko had to do so much research i really wish it was easier to google like Hey, Google, I want a Punisher comic that's about emotional vulnerability, not just mass murder, you know? And I'll, we'll see if I made the right choices. Anyway, on page 212, there's a part where they're, like, in the middle of the big fight with all the robots. There's this little passage where it's like, Frank didn't really disagree with Nick Fury, but he was going to defend himself. I like the passage where where they're in uh, his dumping ground, Nick Fury's dumping ground, and, and uh, the Punisher is going, I was raised Catholic. These seem like demons. I am in hell. <laughs> yeah, he's just like a guy from Earth who yeah. like stands on the ground. Like I like that perspective a lot. Um, that he's like this. This seems fair because these guys are fucking monsters. I'm just a guy who lived in New York. Um, anyway, <clears throat> Fury's first line of defense was a system. Frank Castle wasn't a hero, a villain, a soldier, an assassin, or any of the other things he'd been called over the years. He was what happened after the system broke down. He was the last line of defense. If Daredevil, Captain America, or any of those other so-called superheroes really wanted him gone, they would work to fix the systemic ills that caused the symptoms he dealt with in the street. But that was too hard, too big and scary. But fighting Galactus when he showed up on Main Street? That was something they could get their heads around. They chose to lock themselves into a cycle of constant capture and release that, while pointless, worked as an endlessly recycled excuse to justify their existence. Frank had played his part in the latest nonsense, and now he needed to get back to work. And that work is, of course, shooting people yeah. in the face. I love that passage, though. Yeah, that's such a good take on, like, superhero fiction as well, of, like, you know, it's just telling the same story over and over again about people who don't change anything. Like, And if you just killed those guys, they couldn't come back to cause problems, which is, like, the Punisher's whole ethos. Mm-hmm. is like, if you're dead, you're done. 
and I never have to deal with you again. <laughs> I really liked that passage as well, but I, I focused on something different, which is that you, the where you started reading started with Nick Fury's, you know, first line of defense or his main tenement or whatever was was a system. Mm -hmm. And the point he's making there is he, he he's going... Uh, Nick Fury is maybe considering me for this job, but the problem is he believes in a system, right? And I thought that was also a very interesting commentary mm -hmm. on just how the Punisher is different from the rest of them in the sense that he 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 he's like, I'm case by case. I'm on a case by case basis. I am not yeah. subscribing to, I'm not yeah. beholden to some larger institution. And the fact that you, even in your your craziest iteration, which is, man with giant gun floating in space shooting dinosaurs even you are going because i love the us of a and and yeah. the punisher is thinking even that is too much blind faith for me i love mm -hmm. also that that's that it's repeatedly like explicitly compared to the cia um to like nick fury is literally doing this job while working at the cia and repeatedly is like this is just the galactic version of like destabilizing a, demo a democracy in Southeast Asia so that we can get an ally in the region. This is the equivalent of, like, the CIA assassinating people in Latin America throughout the 60s and 70s. Like, um, which is, and it's like, because he is, you know, it, it, it is presented as necessary, which is interesting. Like, it is like, yeah, the Earth would be destroyed without Nick Fury, but it is also, he is just upholding the status quo, and he's not actually... Um, He's not interested mm -hmm. in changing any systems like Frank talks about. Uh, and I did think it's interesting. There's a moment where he is about to kill Spider-Man because he's like, eh, it was the latest threat. Got to kill the spider Fury guy. Uh, and he's like, hey, yeah. Nick Fury. Yeah. Um, in a flashback uh, as one of his like, oh, I killed a living planet that was evil. I killed a dinosaur. I got to kill this Spider-Man. And he's like, um, oh, you know what? Let this guy go. I got a good feeling about him. Um, and that scene really makes me wonder like, how many people, how many innocent people have you killed? Like, how many moments have there been where it was like, oh, that guy was just as nice as Spider-Man, but he looked like a scary warthog man, so you didn't have second thoughts? Um, and I, I, I think it's implied that that probably has happened. Like, there are these parts about how, like, violence is cyclical, and he's kind of perpetuating it by murdering people around the galaxy. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought just that whole perspective is, was so interesting and really well handled, especially in the novelization. That's an incredible point, and it also makes me realize how strange it is that he is the man on the wall, which to me meant looking out at space and at other dimensions, right, for threats. I thought that was the wall. Mm -hmm. It's crazy that he thought about snipering a kid from Brooklyn who was just, hey, I think I can shoot a yeah. web, and he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot that kid in the head. <laughs> 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 it's like, my job's not pretty, but someone has to do it. I had to shoot that teenager. <laughs> we hired a guard to stand on the wall, but he's shooting people on both sides of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does seem like the, the argument that Captain America ends up making, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that he's like, you could have just like let us all in on yeah. all of the threats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, you don't have to be judge, jury, and executioner. That's not acceptable. When things come to Earth, we'll handle them. We always have. There's a thousand of us, you know? Like, you will still be a man with a giant gun. And if the evil hogs show up, you can still be involved in the fight against the hogs with your big-ass space gun. But maybe don't decide you're the only being in the universe who gets to make these decisions. Yeah. 
right? Which I think is fair to be like, you shouldn't be allowed to just like kill with impunity based on your own choices. Especially when you've been doing it for so long that you're like, have lost your soul. And they do make the point of like, yeah, well, he's like, well, it's okay when I do it because I'm in the right. But they say again and again, like, everybody thinks they're in the right. You know, like, Stalin and Hitler thought they were in the right. You know, like, it doesn't it doesn't You're make not, you the like, good guy. You're not, like, blessed with some moral knowledge that the rest of us don't have. And the Watcher, who is kind of blessed with a moral mm-hmm. knowledge the rest of us don't have, has made the right choice to be like, I can't be involved now. It's wrong if I'm involved. Yeah, do we think... Is, is it bad that the Watcher... Is the Watcher guilty by inaction, as Nick Fury thinks, or is is it? What, what do we think about that? I think the Watcher is guilty by inaction, and I'm just bringing my own philosophies into this. But it's wild that mm-hmm. he went. Yeah. Oh, let me give someone nuclear arms. Oh, that went badly. I gotta go all the way to the other side because at a certain point, yes, I get that as an initial reaction. <laughs> but at a certain point, he has now watched millennia of turmoil <laughs> and stuff, and he's still going. Yeah. But that one time I interfered, that was really bad. He's- to, yeah, to make a mistake and be like, what I've learned from this is that taking action yeah, is wrong. Yeah, he <laughs> needs to find a third bowl of porridge, is my message to the Watcher. Well, that's that's why I didn't like that origin story, mm-hmm. though, because I, I, I think the novel proper, uh, without that, presents him more as like, hey, this is so, almost a, like a religious belief that he holds. Yeah, I agree. I mean... Definitely reading the book first, I was like, well, he's just, that's their whole deal is that they're not Mm -hmm. involved. They've never been involved. They won't be involved. They just are, what? They just watch. They just keep, take it in and keep things that otherwise might be lost. Mm -hmm. So for me, from that angle, like if that's your deal, then like you are fine to not get involved. And there is no guilt by inaction. (laughs) You just happen to live on the moon. Even though he could, he could do, <laughs> yeah. he could stop things, right? Like he watches all the atrocities of yeah. mankind happen. Right. Well, sometimes you have to let children make their own mistakes, yeah. Yeah. right? Like you, if you, if you're, if you're going to coddle a baby its entire life, it will never grow. No defense of the Watcher can can deal with the fact that he's amassing arms inside his home from alien lands. Why is he doing that? <laughs> oh yeah, why is he doing that? He's a collector. Yeah. He's not using them. Okay. He's like looking at them. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It's weird. And it is a little risky that he doesn't have all of those guns in a gun safe. Put them in a yeah. vault, buddy. Don't let people saunter in and steal them. That's irresponsible. I thought it was a cool sci-fi conceit that he powers down for 42 minutes every 300 years or whatever to upload mm-hmm. everything he's recorded. <laughs> but it was weird that when he woke up from the 42 minutes... He wasn't going around going, is everything okay? He just woke up and thought, another stroll. Uh, I only do that nap every 300 years, but I'm sure it's fine. I also thought it would have been... Also, that's a problem with having zero friends. Nobody to watch his back. He has no friends. That guy gets sunburned on his back at the beach so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it would have been such a cool twist. Now I'm just doing fan fiction. But I thought it would have been such a cool twist if... The orb and Midas and everybody had gotten the eye, and it was just blank because he had just uploaded everything. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would have been a fun twist, like it was all for naught. I do think the book handles the couple of twists very nicely, like the Nick Fury is a robot reveal, very effective. 
the part where you're like, who shot the Watcher? Oh, it was the orb. The orb killed the Watcher. Insane. And then you're like, no, it wasn't mm-hmm. the orb. Like the series of reveals that happened with that, I found like exciting and punchy. They also give you the toolkit to understand, and I, I fell for it too, but they give you the toolkit to understand that the that the orb didn't kill the Watcher or might not have because in the book, mm-hmm. they add the Ben Grimm secret that we talked about, that he was fucked over by the Human Torch, but it's told from the Human Torch's perspective. And so we, the reader, go, oh, sometimes when you're getting these, they're not from the perspective of yourself or the person who held the eye out. And so when it was a vision of someone shooting the watcher point blank, you can look back and go, oh, that's not necessarily the orb. That's just the sensation of experiencing that memory is to be the shooter. This, Yeah, it's a story that works well when you think back on it and you're like, oh, the clues were there. Uh, which is very satisfying to be able to, in hindsight, be like, oh, man, I could have figured it out, but I wasn't, I wasn't on top a of smart it. superhero detective, yeah, yeah. so I didn't. <laughs> Hannah Blackman. Uh-huh. You are going about your daily routine. You're a timid uh, high school student. Uh, you're going about your daily routine, uh, <laughs> and you slowly come to realize throughout your day that you might have the abilities of a tiger after you were bitten by a radioactive tiger on a field trip last week. <laughs> As you start to, you know, uh-huh. do the thing that cats do where you, like, pulse your paws out and stretch your claws, you're just doing this on the street. <laughs> yeah, a little kneading, making biscuits. As you do that, um, a, a giant bullet from Nick Fury's gun severs your spinal cord. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! He believes you to be dead, but you are just paralyzed for life in the hospital. A giant green bullet. And later in the home that uh, you, you can never leave. Would you choose to listen to the audiobook Original Sin by Gavin G. Smith? Um, I think if... <laughs> it sounds like I live in the Marvel Universe, right? Yeah. Wherein superheroes are around all the time, yeah? It could be the fucking Dark Tower, if we're being honest. <laughs> if Nick Fury's there, it could be the Dark Tower. We don't know. Could be the Dark Tower. I think this would be a fun book to read if you're, like, into Marvel and you, like, want to have more of the thing. As a person who's only sort of marginally into Marvel, I did find it interesting. I think it is well-written and compelling, but it was very disorienting and kind of wild. It was a wild ride for many reasons. So, uh, yeah, I think in that specific scenario, I'd probably read it. I don't I don't think I, I would necessarily recommend it all the way around town, but to certain specific people, I would. I feel like I almost got my dad intrigued by it, which is a crazy twist of fate, but he will never, he will never do it. I think part of the trouble with recommending this book is like, yeah. part of the buy-in is knowing where it ends up. It's hard to pitch mm. this thing going, there's 40 characters and... It's a mystery, and you'll see. It's pretty cool, you know? And the mystery is about a murder of a character that, like, if you're Hannah Blackman, you've never fucking heard of before, so it doesn't mean anything to you. But when you look back on the shape of the story, it is satisfying and clever, and mm-hmm. and it has twists and turns that are legitimately so original, and I, you know, obviously I wouldn't credit the bones of the story to Gavin, but I think he does such a terrific job of making it funny and and i'm like doing mine now but i i just mean like the the you are the ending it 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 makes everything before it seem way better 
And because it is, you just mm. can't see it yet, you know? Mm. Ocular. Mm. Oh, oh, vision, seeing things. John Goodman, you are a sentient planet who's a bit of a homebody. <laughs> you don't venture out and try to dominate <laughs> other worlds, but your beloved husband does. Oh. He floats out towards <laughs> something called Earth, promising that you will be able to eat its inhabitants <laughs> soon. As you wait for him to come home, knowing what you know, would you pick up a copy of Original Sin by Gavin Smith? Oh, wow. I hope I don't, because that's not going to be a nice way to find out what happened to my beloved husband. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I really enjoyed uh, reading this. I listened to it as an audiobook, um, which I thought was nice also because it was... Um, you know, a graphic novel is already a visual medium, so I was kind of feeling like, oh, if I'm going to read this, I would just read the graphic novel. But audiobook was sort of like, eh, new medium. I, I agree with Hannah pretty much. I, I, I thought it was was great. I would I would probably not recommend it to um, other than to a specific type of person. I, I think it, it just like if you're not into Marvel, um, you're going to have trouble getting through the first like third of it. Um, it's a lot of like... And then this character was here with this character and this character, and they did this. And, and it, it's just, it's sort of disorienting. It's gonna, like, it's hard to, like, get a handle on. Um, but I think if you, if you're, like, into Marvel but have, are only, like, into the movies, not really into the comics, I think that's fine. Like, I, I don't think you'll be, like, totally lost or anything. I think just, like, this novel is, um, it's a little hard to engage with in that way. It's not like the most accessible piece of writing. Um, and I, I, as someone who likes this kind of stuff, was was still sort of struggling to engage with it for a little while. Um, once I did, though, I mean, like, the stuff about, um, like, the Watcher and Nick Fury as these sort of, like, foils of, like, all-seeing characters who take opposite approaches to that power um, and, like, tying it in with the, like, geopolitical stuff and the, like, all these different perspectives on it. You got, like, the Punisher's perspective. You got Emma Frost. You got all these different, like, uh, figures. I think uh, it ends up being something really cool. Um, and if you are willing to, you know, uh, wade into it, then absolutely give it a read. Andrew Overby. Hi. You are a former child soldier, current mercenary slash superhero slash whatever you do, <laughs> right? You have been drawn along on an intergalactic job interview that you didn't apply for, to be frank. And you're not necessarily interested in doing it. But now you're in the final runnings and you think, ah, might be good. You want a little more context for what the job entails. And you ask the interviewer, hey, can I get some information? And he's like, well, I can tell you a 45-minute story. <laughs> or you can read Original Sin, um, the graphic novel and or the prose novel. Would you read this book to help fill in the gaps of what the job entails? And then would you accept the job? Ooh. This story uh, as a whole, I'm realizing, is is like those automated uh, LinkedIn reach outs where they're like we want to consider you for a job and it's sent by like a bot yeah because it's literally sent by a bot original <laughs> sin um but yeah i didn't apply for this job i don't know why i'm being considered uh i don't know why people think i want to climb the ladder professionally i'm a very complacent person please stop sending me those linkedin messages i would definitely read the graphic novel or and or the novel i enjoyed both a lot uh the graphic novel probably because i just never ever read them and i thought oh this is a fun different way to experience the story but it was so confusing it was impossibly confusing as a graphic novel i think the novelization pluses it up 
incredibly. I, I thought a lot about the second Batman and Robin book we did, Hannah, the one by Alan Grant, not the Jurassic Park guy. <laughs> and the, in that book, I, I praised a lot how there would be these tiny paragraphs and the entire purpose of the paragraph would be to convey what was obviously a panel of a comic book, which I thought was kind of cool. It was, instead of really being a prose novel, it was like, here's four sentences, that's an image. Here's five sentences, that's an image. But, having read this now, I think this is a, a vastly superior book to that one. I yeah. I retroactively feel critical of the second Batman and Robin wow. we covered, because I feel like it was just transcribing an experience that you could visually have and would be inherently richer. Uh, this book does that. It really recreates the image from the comic book, but it also goes, and let me tell you about how Emma Frost can hear her boyfriend's dreams. And let me add secrets that weren't in the in the graphic novel. Because the graphic novel, he Thor goes, oh, oh my god, I have a sister. A couple others are realized. We don't get that Captain America thing. We don't get... Uh, I don't think we even get the Hulk thing. It's like, I I really liked the secrets. I really like really any story where, like, one event affects everyone in wildly different ways, and we get a ton of different perspectives. I, I like when it all comes down to sort of this one narrative secrets bomb. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I would definitely recommend this. Also, I forgot to say this earlier, but I can't imagine the orb without thinking that he's Alan Tadik. What do you guys think? Sure, that feels right. I love the way Gavin describes his voice as like wet oh, and squishy. Squishy. His voice so is squishy. So good. Someone his goes, voice is squishy. How rocks. do you talk? Uh, because you don't have a mouth. And he goes, great question. It was hard. It took me a long time to learn. I love yes. that. <laughs> I would love to know a little bit more about how the orb got an eyeball for a head. If he was born that way, what the deal is. His voice in this novel is so funny. Mm -hmm. Like, he's such a funny little Dorcas who's like, actually, I have a funny thing to tell you about my funny little eyeball. Um, I think Mr. Tudick would be good in that role if uh, if it ever came to screen. I also couldn't believe how buff that character is in the graphic novel. Yeah. I was imagining him as, like, a little, like, wizard, basically. It's that weird comic book thing where, like, the default body type is superhero buff. (laughs) (laughs) What a world to live in. But, Andrew, you didn't answer my second question, if you would Mm. accept the murder job. Oh, uh, no. I mean, I... These Avengers are so busy all the time. They have their own villains. Then they have villains that they fight as a team. I can't be the man on the wall. It's so funny that Nick Fury's like, I had to do that on Friday through Sunday. (laughs) So emergency man on the wall shit on Tuesday. I'm busy. busy. He's got a secret identity and a day job, but his day job is being Nick Fury. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he never really addresses, like, he must just spend his entire time with the Avengers thinking, I have such more important shit to do right now. <laughs> I could solve this with my giant gun. Oh, man. There was also a second when he's in his flashback talking about, like, the previous man on the mm-hmm. wall where I was like, who's this guy? The fucking Rocketeer or something? <laughs> and then it wasn't. And I googled him and it was like, oh, he's he kind of just- nobody. Uh, like... <laughs> McCord. It did feel like yeah. somebody that I Would felt like McCord. I was. I was like, I should recognize who this right. character is. But no. But he's not anybody really. It it made me laugh. The image of uh, when when Nick Fury finds the previous man on the wall dying, uh, and and a giant bomb has gone off, and he sees Howard Stark in a suit 
just sort of like trounce in going well golly gee that was a huge blast that's gonna make me a lot of money i love the bomb (laughs) (laughs) yeah this book is just full of like delightful details and Mm -hmm. moments and and that once again i can't vouch for it but this must be rewarding for people who actually like marvel right it just has to be i think they probably also get annoyed at some of the stuff but yeah People who are really into those kinds of details can be annoying about it sometimes. And I could see them also reacting like, well, Tony Stark didn't make the Hulk. That's not right. I don't know. (laughs) Can I ask a quick question about Dr. Midas before we wrap up? Oh, yeah, please do. So he's called Dr. Midas because he can turn any situation to his advantage. And they keep being like, ah, the man who can take any situation and turn him to his advantage. That's why they call him Dr. Midas. But he can also turn things into gold. (laughs) Like, he touches things and they turn into gold. Like, yeah. I think that's why they call you Dr. Midas. I don't think it's this other thing. It does kind of sound like he's the kind of guy who's like, look, can I turn things into gold? <laughs> but more importantly, you I can do this situation. I'll turn it to my advantage. I think you'll find <laughs> that when you can turn anything to gold, situations tend to turn to your advantage. <laughs> It's like a metaphor and a real thing. I like that Midas, so. <laughs> his spaceship is gold, which maybe is a, you know, is an aesthetic flourish where he goes, I'm the gold guy, I'm going to make my spaceship gold. But maybe is also him going, I'm going to be barefoot in this thing sometimes. It's just going to become gold. <laughs> uh, we didn't talk at all about Executrix. And that's Exterminatrix? Not... Exterminatrix, whatever the fuck. Then also her real name is Oubliette. You can't have your real name also sound <laughs> like a supervillain name. That's too confusing. Look, there's a million things we haven't discussed. <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about mindless ones. We're just not going to get to no, it. Yeah. Oh, the mindless ones. They hate having a mind. <laughs> they hate it. <laughs> they hate it. They're so pissed so about it. It's so funny, though, when Oubliette is like, they're talking about literature. I fucking hate that. <laughs> <laughs> but then she does say at one point kind of an interesting character detail she's like i talk to them a lot even though they are mindless she like uses them for therapy essentially he seems like a lonely <laughs> to our listeners do stick around as hannah and i will be interviewing the author of the book himself gavin g smith right now joining us now is the author of many novels, including Veteran, War in Heaven, The Age of Scorpio Trilogy, The Bastard Legion series, Spec Ops Zed, and of course, the prose novelization of Marvel's Original Sin. A great friend of the show, you may recognize him from our episodes on Heat 2, Aliens, and his own novelization of the film Bloodshot. Gavin G. Smith, amazing to have you back. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Um, uh, I'm very pleased to be back. And how are you both? Yeah, I'm personally really good. We're feeling fresh. We're feeling cool. (laughs) I I have a question to kick us off here, which is that the copyright page of this book has the verbiage, Gavin Smith asserts the moral right to be identified as the author of this work. What does this mean? Um, I, I, I I think the most important lesson that we can take from that is that this means that 
writers should have agents because agents handle the contracts and we largely <laughs> don't know uh, uh, what's in them. I, I don't know. I think it, it's just to say that um, I did the work. But I mean, of course, the the original work was Diodato and Co. So Yeah, I was wondering that if it's specifically something about the art of adaptation, if it's going though elements are carried over from this mm. previous medium, mm. Gavin Smith should be identified as the author of this work. Just found it fascinating and a little scary. It's like, <laughs> he wrote this book, and he was right too. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't think it's uh, so much a moral imperative. To get us into the actual meat of the book, what relationship did you have to Marvel prior to writing this book? Had you written for Marvel before? And... Uh, you know, did you read comic books growing up? And, and sort of within that, do you have any relationship to the original Sin storyline? As a kid in the 70s in Scotland, um, in Dundee, where I was from, is very important to the comics industry in Britain. Um, there's a publisher there called DC Thompson, not to be confused with DC, who produces comics um, like the Beano. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with that. Dennis the Menace, things like that. I've heard of these things. I'm familiar with them conceptually. Yeah, they, I mean, these are these are like sort of um, kids' comedy stories. Yeah, they're nothing. They're nothing like superhero comics or, or anything like that. But it's where a lot of British um, uh, comic talent trained. So they ended up working in Dundee. So people like Pat Mills, who went on to uh, edit 2000 AD and helped um, create Judge Dredd and things like that. They sort of um, did some of their formative years uh, working uh, working for DC Thompson. We have a family connection to DC Thompson, but my gran somehow in the 1970s in Dundee still managed to find me import American superhero comics. So wow. I was reading them from the 70s, which was a reasonably early um, adopter for American superhero comics uh, in the UK, because my memory of it is they weren't terribly well widespread but i mean of course there might be people who have either more knowledge or are a bit older than me that might be able to tell you otherwise uh, so i was reading them from that point on and then um come the 80s and you, you get this sort of the british explosion coming through dc so people like alan moore jamie delano and then a bit later on neil gaiman and then even a bit later on Grant Morrison, I started rereading them again. And um, it sort of kicked off with The Dark Knight Returns, which was Frank Miller, but then moved quite quickly into uh, Marvel. So a lot of my favorite comics are DC comics. A lot of my formative comics are DC comics, but um, always found Marvel because I think it's more of a soap opera, because the characters are more relatable. <laughs> it was always the one you. I kept sort of going back to for the oncoming uh, for the for the ongoing storylines that you kind of stuck with it. So I knew the characters very well. Um, I'd collected Marvel on and off, uh, certainly from my mid-teens onwards. But I mean, I've been familiar with them since I was um, very young indeed. So I was quite familiar with them. Um, I didn't know original sin that well i'd seen it but i didn't read it until um i i got the job and i think mm. 
part of the reason I got the job was because I was familiar and enthusiastic because if you're going to be a commercial writer, if you're going to work on other people's IPs, I really do don't don't think you're just doing it for the money. You have to be enthusiastic for what you're sure. writing about. Otherwise, it just won't work. The other reason, I think, is with my sort of Age of Scorpio trilogy, um, I'd done a lot of multiple... Um, multiple character stuff i'd done a lot of jumping around in time and a lot of jumping around in places and a lot of head hopping um i'd shown that i was able to write uh, sort of epic widescreen stories uh, and do it across timelines you know do it with uh, multiple povs uh, and multiple distinct povs and i think that's why um, I was asked to do it because it's not it's not that common a kill, uh, skill set at the moment amongst writers. There's a, a lot of sort of one character POV stuff. Uh, we, we both enjoyed the book a lot, but I, I think that when you look at the graphic novel, it's a very daunting task, even if you have great enthusiasm about it. I mean, there's so many characters and... Many of them factor into the plot in minor but crucial ways. Was there any discussion at any point in this project about paring down the cast, or were you given the mission to really faithfully adapt the plot? Did you consider like changing the plot or diverging in any ways? You have to be very, you have to be very careful when you're using other IP, uh, other people's IPs as to what you sure. can and can't add, and it also depends on who's the uh, on who's the holder of that IP. And I am now I'm developing a hierarchy of how uh, how different IP holders how how tight they are um, and how much they're. Uh, beginning, they're prepared to let you change stuff with um, sure. uh, the people who looked after Bloodshot on the, yep, go for your life, do what you need to do, end. and um, <laughs> other companies that I won't mention on the, no, you may not change anything <laughs> at all on the other end. And Marvel is somewhere in the middle. So we had to stick to the story, um, but we also had mm -hmm. to make a readable novel. So what I think, had I just sort of just kicked off and just tried to write it i would have been lost very quickly um so mm. one of the first things they asked me to do and i'm not even sure this may have even been um before we signed the contract i, I can't quite remember just to just to, just to see how i would do it was to for me send in a plan saying how i'd cut it up how i'd do it how many povs um i would do and the POV question was about trying to get the absolute minimum amount of points of views that covers the most amount of story. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's roughly about, I, I think it's about five or six really significant POVs and a couple of other minor ones. So we're talking, we're talking the Punisher. We're talking, who are our other POVs, Hannah? Emma. Yeah, Emma. Bucky, Nick Fury, in two ways. Oh, I, I don't know how you feel about spoilers on this. <laughs> it was maybe eight minutes into the episode that I went, let's just talk about who killed the Watcher. <laughs> let's just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've covered it. Right, okay, fair enough. Full spoilers. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, uh, Nick Fury, you've got the orb, um, which 
really confused me, the character being called The Orb, because it's also the name of a 1990s sort of um, uh, electronica band that I'm quite familiar (laughs) with. So you're entering the project with different levels of familiarity with these characters, right? So like, like you're going, of course, my, my boy Bucky Barnes, but then who the heck is the orb? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I knew who the orb was. I didn't know that much about him. The two I had to do the most research for was the orb and Emma Frost. I'd read comics with both of them in before, but I didn't know I didn't know that much about uh, either of them. And um, Emma Emma was a character I felt quite strongly because she's sort of she's kind of minor in the graphic novel, but she's present a lot. And her character is written in the comics rather than what I what I did with her is a very interesting character, and I thought that she would make for a good observer, which is kind of a no no for writing because you want your characters really heavily involved mm-hmm. in the main in the main stuff. But I think it just about worked. May I direct you to a little? novel called The Great Gatsby, which I think works actually uh, quite well. And, and the the protagonist, while emotionally involved, is, is largely plot passive. Right. Okay. <laughs> I have to say I've not I've not read the I've not read the the, the Great Gatsby. Gotcha journalism's gonna be my new thing. Right. <laughs> But I mean, I, I mean that's that's kind of uh, that's kind of um, uh, that's kind of the thing. These things that we're not supposed to do. If you look at all the great novels, they frequently mm-hmm. do them um in science fiction and fantasy in terms of head hopping june june's head hopping paragraph to paragraph and gets away mm. with it but, you know so mm-hmm. we see but yes yeah, so i had to i had to try and get the minimum amount of povs for the maximum amount of coverage so some things did have to get lost um but not very much and more frequently and not what happened is we added uh, very brief POVs, for example, in the flashback or the truth bomb section where there's all sorts of people. I mean, I, I talk about things you don't do in a novel. You sort of allude to these huge momentous moments and then never return to them. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to return to them either i mean if anybody wants to find out uh, what that was all about they will then have to go and sort of um find the appropriate comment were there images in the graphic novel that you felt you like absolutely had to recreate or did you just sort of like take the plot points and the dialogue and spin your own visuals i i had to find all sorts of ways to <laughs> to describe the, the 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 pictures the opening the opening <laughs> chapter uh the opening chapter where you've got the the two um uh body doubles sort of going through the watcher's fortress i felt yes, like andrew I, yeah yeah, I was. I, I felt like I was um, uh, trying to describe the cover of a 1970s progressive rock album. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, no, I tried to. I tried to describe um, what was going on in the pictures. Um, obviously, I tried to uh, describe it in my own way and in a way that is um, 
int- hopefully interesting for uh, for the readers. I I I think there's two things around that though. That, um, first of all, if you get into the flow of dialogue, sometimes you just let that run, and you've done your sort of what would be considered an establishing shot in a script. But you know, you see, you you've hopefully put the picture in the reader's mind, and then you can just let the 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 scene flow. Uh, the other point with that is that often it helps because. Particularly when you're writing dialogue, you can be like a page down and you thought, okay, well, these characters are just standing completely still, except for when they're saying things. Whereas if if you've got a picture, you're able to make it more dynamic because you're describing what's going on. Of course, um, comics are a very kinetic uh, medium. So uh, there's always somebody moving. So it helps you avoid that kind of talking heads element but i think the surprising thing about the medium is often the meaning in comics is sort of kind of what they don't show what you are supposed to because we even with some uh, a, a medium as visual as comics we're filling in the gaps a lot ourselves mm-hmm. um so that was kind of interesting and sometimes i had to fill in the gaps and sometimes you can just sort of leave the gap and leave it to the to the reader to work out i want to talk about the secrets bomb uh what writing that was like because in the book you give us i think everything that the graphic novel does where uh certain characters realize certain secrets and exclaim them out loud or or what have you so as a graphic novel reader we're going okay Thor knows about his sister, but you also add so many secrets. And so I have a couple questions about this, which is, first off, was that your initiative? Did you go, I want to give XYZ more people secrets? And secondly, are they canon? So did you pull these secrets that you added into the book from other Captain America comics or what have you? I, well, I mean, I, the, the second one is the easiest to answer. They are all canon. Um, as okay. well as well as getting the graphic novel, I was also um, given a, a PDF of uh, of basically all the stories that sprang off from the Truth Bomb, uh, the, the Truth oh. Bomb thing. So I had. So we actually see yeah. in the comic books. We see. Spider-Man go after this other spider person yes, and all yeah, of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so um, where the extra stuff was coming from tended to be the beginning of those story arcs, effectively. Mm. I think when I wrote it originally, I sort of kept it to what was in original Sin, which isn't very much. And... Mm-hmm. Um, there was two issues. Uh, one original, uh, the novelization was coming in a little light on the world, the, on the word count, um, mm. but much more importantly, um, it didn't really, it didn't read well. It didn't sort of make sense. It seemed like a, a series of non sequitur, non sequiturs, and um, so it needed a little bit more. But I think that was the section that um, between myself, my editors at Titan and um, Marvel, we went backwards and forwards about the most. 
and it was the bit of the book that took the longest to get right um because mm -hmm. again it's a huge no no these these <laughs> these bits of story go nowhere in the book yeah it was the hardest part of the book to write as well one of the things that we experienced as two sort of non-comic book readers who yeah. have seen some marvel movies is we were like these are versions of these characters that we don't understand whatsoever mm. um which i think is not the experience of most readers <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's, it's difficult to imagine who, no, that's not fair. I'm not sure who it's aimed at. <laughs> well, I've got, to be, I, I've got to be kind of careful. Um, Gavin, I know how to answer that question. It's yeah. people who host a novelization right, okay. podcast. Yeah. I, that, 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 that might go some way towards explaining my um, uh, tens, uh, maybe twenties of sales then. So, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, but that's the thing, is it? I, I mean, I think I was thinking that it's for the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe fans who want to dig a little bit deeper, uh, rather mm -hmm. than it's necessarily for the, the hardcore Marvel fans, which is not to say the hardcore Marvel fans aren't completely and totally welcome. There were certain uh, winks, it felt like to me, to Marvel canon that I just didn't understand, uh, such as there's that line in the book where one of the characters goes, shouldn't Nick Fury be helping with this? Doesn't the L in S.H.I.E.L.D. stand for law enforcement? I think it did, at least until the 90s. Mm. Was that a thing that changed within within the world of Marvel, or was it a thing that changed within, like, our world? Did they, like, retcon the name of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something? Um, uh, it changed as part... Uh, I, I, um, I can remember it happening. I don't know that much about the reasoning behind it, but, I mean, it was mm. an in-fiction reason for it. I think it was a... I see. Um, I think it was a, a shift in, um, in emphasis for the organization, and... I wonder if it had anything to do with it becoming less an American, a part of the American security apparatus and more of um, a sort of international agency. Sure. Um, uh, but, I mean, I, 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 don't hold me to that. And I, you're always, Can I... always very careful talking about canon for something like Marvel because, um, my goodness <laughs> me, do they have um, very loyal fans. How would you say this process compared to what we usually talk about, which is novelizing film? Uh, my my guess, just to not let you answer the question, is usually when people novelize films, it seems like the novelizations at least mimic the sequence of movies, right? Mm -hmm. they, they tend to go scene by scene. Was that the case with this? Uh, how, how did you approach it? So this was a lot easier than the Bloodshot one, uh, but part of the reason is I knew a lot more going in because I'd done Bloodshot, and mm -hmm. part of it was the medium, uh, in a weird way, because I was working from the script for Bloodshot, which is one of the reasons it's kind of different from the film. Um, sure. But um, I had everything for Original Sin, 
So that made mm-hmm. that a lot easier. I wasn't going through production stills trying to work out how to describe stuff like I was on, on Bloodshot, <laughs> for example. Um, I'm mostly stuck with the structure of the graphic novel. I did try and add um, a like a 7,000 word um, flashback early on to uh, World War II with Bucky, Captain America, mm-hmm. and Nick Fury with the Howling Commandos. Um, but Marvel said no, and I I'm, I was disappointed, but I understood why. And uh, other than that, a couple of things happen in a slightly different sequence. Um, and uh, some of the chapters are moved around in time compared to the um, graphic novel. But that's only because it made more sense on the page that way. Other than that, it was pretty much left alone. So when you're introducing all of these different point of view characters and you know, we, we really sing the praises on our episode about the, the, the Punisher interiority, right? He gets so many he gets so many paragraphs that are like, here's my whole deal, here's how I feel about the current situation. I'm different than everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> the best part. Yeah, I, I'd, uh, I, I, it's interesting. Um, a lot of people have mentioned the Punisher stuff. Now, um, the Punisher is one of my favorite characters in the Marvel Universe. And that's normally the kind of thing that you say um, before somebody phones the authorities. Um, worried, <laughs> that, worried that, you know... Yeah, you're... but I need you to recommend me some good Punisher comics. Right. I mean, having I, heard that, yeah, uh, but I, I, one of the so I mean the fact that I like the Punisher the most, I think, says that I sort of really enjoy crime and war stories, you know. Um, but I mean that's kind of the Marvel films thing, isn't it? Nothing's a superhero story; it's all something else. Like right. you know, Thor is a fantasy story, Guardians is science fiction you know, Captain America, mm-hmm. Winter Soldier as a spy film, things like that. They all take from other things. And when they just try and do pure superhero, which I think is some of the failing of the DC films, they don't do as well. The Punisher, because of how he works, has become something of a political football. The people who look at him politically and say, yeah, yeah, that's my boy there as far as the Punisher... If they committed a crime, he'd still shoot them in the head, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I kind of wanted to do it, and I kind of, I kind of wanted to um, have a think about why he's there, uh, what he's about, what his role is in, uh, mm-hmm. in the universe, and kind of the ridiculousness of the. Um, uh, of the notion of some of these team team ups. Now, when I say it's mm-hmm. ridiculous, uh, isn't a critical of the the original stuff. I mean, I just the, the sort of the whole dynamic as it exists across all sorts of different uh, different genres of this nature. And funnily enough, he teams up with one of um, my other favorite Marvel characters, who's Doctor Strange, because I just love wizards. And- <laughs> Uh, uh, but I mean, it's not—it's not an easy or natural team up, is it? I mean, mm-hmm. no. Yeah, uh, one could even say, "I'll say what you won't." An ill-advised team <laughs> <Yeah>. up, maybe. <laughs> uh, 
They don't work so great together. I'm saying ill-advised on the point of on the part of Nick Fury, not the writers. They just they're not the best team. <laughs> but they are such an exciting contradiction to put next to each other. Yes. Yeah. The height of superhero fantasy and like a man with a gun. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think um, I can't. I, I, um... I think I'd describe him as, uh, I think from Frank's perspective, I'd describe him as something like a disco uh, disco wizard or something <laughs> like that, which I think is so, probably my favorite Frank moment in the in the book. But. In in adding all this interiority, which was, you know, the, the best part of the book, and, and as you say, it's like the way in which someone who is already a fan of the graphic novel could dig into it more, is that when you read your novel... You get a little more about Emma Frost. You get a little more about the Punisher. Were you approaching that going, okay, I'm mostly going to tackle the events in order, and then any time I get a perspective character introduced for the first time, I'll give them that? Like, because to me, I'm not a writer. I, I just wonder, how do you decide when someone gets the three paragraphs that explains their whole deal to us? Because you have forty characters, right? You can't do it all at once. I, I'm I'm not sure it was that conscious a conscious a thought. It, it it seemed to come up naturally within what was what was going on. Part of what's going on, because even when you're dealing with the even when you're dealing with the interior worlds of these characters, these characters are probably not admitting certain stuff to themselves out loud. Right. I mean, a lot of what frank's thinking about is um what he's going to do if this turns bad because he's in several rooms with people who are considerably more powerful than him Mm -hmm. so he needs uh, you know he needs redundancies now what you don't get in it um because he's been trained and experienced is he's probably feeling frightened you know, he's channeling that because he's been trained to do that and he, he he has the experience to handle it. On the other hand, he might be completely and totally emotionally dead, but I don't think that... <laughs> I, I, I I don't think the Punisher is a psychopath. It's less fun if he's just like a, yeah. a robot who kills people, basically. Like, it's much more intriguing when he has feelings and morals. Yes. Well, yeah, and... And even Bucky is edging. I, I think Bucky edges a little bit further um, past Nick Fury as well. Bucky's deal is sort of, um, I want to do the thing, and I've got just about as much grasp as I need of how the work the world works to know that I need some kind of justification to allow me to do the thing. And I think whereas with Nick Fury, his point is kind of he was at a rupture point in history. He saw what the Nazis did and feel that he could never allow something like that to happen again. But then, of course, he goes on and commits his own genocides. But, hey, he's doing that to people that don't look like us. So that's all right, right? Isn't it? Where the book lands, where... Bucky is like the, of course, the only choice for this continuing role um, to land on someone who has like a more cold, pragmatic sense of like patriotism, where like Nick Fury has allowed it to like eat up his whole concept of what's right mm. um, to land in a place where like, well, Bucky's a fucked up human being who's going to do fucked up shit, but at least he knows it. 
He's not going to try and justify <laughs> that it's like totally cool to commit mass genocides on other planets. Yeah. He just doesn't mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I mean, uh, uh, yeah, he's a. I don't know. It's the. It's the. It's the. Uh, this is where the my editor at Titan quoted this. It's the the conundrum from uh, a few good men, isn't it? You know, we we stand our watch. Who are you going to get to do this? Do you need bad people to look after uh, to look after our freedom? Or is there another way? I think um, got use of weapons. So novel by Ian Banks, which covers the same sort of same sort of ground. They've got this utopian society called the culture. But in order for the culture to exist, they need operatives who are just going to go out there and do awful, awful things. I don't feel that that Nick Fury makes a great case in the the graphic novel. <laughs> And and consequently, the novel that it needs to be one unregulated man. I think that's <laughs> the problem I really have is that he's going. There's terrors out there. We need to save the earth. Also, I'm the only one who can handle it, and I don't have a boss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think some regulation would be preferable. <laughs> yeah, is he the best person to do it? For example, Steve Rogers. You know, could. Could Steve have mm-hmm. talked the wildebeest into not eating sentient creatures? We don't know. Right. But um, I think, I mean, that's the thing, because it's a comic book. We're presented with absolutes, um, that the people that Fury kills are absolutely <clears throat> irredeemably dangerous, which right. d- doesn't so much happen in the real world. And even when it does, we're more likely to lock them up and in actual fact, when we as a society go out to kill, uh, for the most part, it's much more ambiguous. It, uh, it is the, uh, the conundrum of, uh, you know, when we, when we take someone and we elevate them in terms of power above normal humans, there's, um, uh, there's a kind of inherent fascism to it. Because there's, yes. there's a sort of ubermensch going on. This is not to say that you know, superhero comics are fascism, but there's that there's that tension there that you're always trying to deal with when you when you take a step back and have a have a look at it. And it's often handled very well and written about very well by you know a lot of good um, uh, a, a lot of good sort of writers. I mean, it, it it was both Alan Moore's and to a certain extent early Frank Miller's spiel for a while i i do agree with the the fascist comparisons i I think the interesting thing with the man on the wall and also with captain america's secret in which he learns that they wiped his memory after essentially destroying a parallel universe it is playing with this idea that of course we don't like fascism of course we don't of course we don't but this type of uh, oppression, this type of genocide is being aimed outward at the rest of the universe, right? Yeah. Under the guise of we're protecting Earth, which everyone in the story does seem to consider differently, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, they wouldn't be happy if there's this sort of stuff happening to Earthlings, mm-hmm. but instead, when it's about our protection, it becomes this righteous cause, which, which I found really meaty. A, a question I want to ask you, because we have after... The theme song plays at the end of this episode. We have uh, a, a game that has already been recorded right. in which yeah. Hannah and uh, our co-host John and I uh, theorize about what would happen if the watcher's eye were pulled out in 
you know, movies that we enjoy, what would people learn? What what fictional universe would you like to see the Watcher's eye pulled out in? Uh, I keep I keep um, I keep on being surprised by these uh, these uh, conversations and prove how much I need to plan to be creative, <laughs> in any way, shape or form. We'll always surprise you. Yeah, you, you um, could take you well, take ninety seconds to come up with it. I'll cut it like you had it ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, I, I suspect I would have said Heat before Heat Two, but now their their internal worlds has been exposed for all to see. <laughs> I do want to see uh, Neil respond to somebody holding a giant eyeball. It would only be a funny reaction. I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, he might even have a facial expression. You know. <laughs> It's a lot of work to get um, uh, Neil to have a, <laughs> a, a facial expression. I feel. Uh, I think I know. I know where. I know where I would like it to happen. I would like it to happen in the aliens universe, in a world that has been overrun by the aliens. Um, so uh, we see an externalized. Um, uh, an externalized form of their uh, in, uh, interiority and it's something just so mind-blowing and utterly beyond our um, uh, con- uh, ability to conceptualize it that it's totally odd i would also like to not have to write it I would like like somebody much, much cleverer than I to try and write that. Because, of course, that's that's where I I think it would be something sort of uh, Lovecraftian and obviously Mm -hmm. Geiger-esque. But um, it could just be that they play Euchre. Like, we don't know. I think I think that would disappoint a lot of people. Um, (laughs) I personally want to see the eye popping up in everything this is my takeaway from original sin and get the eye get the eye in family dramas get the eye in rom-coms people need to just forcefully get other people's secrets out of nowhere andrew loves drama he's inviting it into his life i think an interesting one would be predator and they're all revealed as sort of um, as a friend of mine described them gap year trustafarians you know they're just <laughs> that's Excellent. You know, I that, that. I, that was not my it's idea. Like one predator who's like, my great secret is that my parents are so ashamed of me. <laughs> <laughs> they really wanted me to get a job right away, and I didn't. That's a terrific call. I love that. <laughs> the, the predators as the, uh, what is it, the rich kids of Instagram, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin G. Smith, wonderful talking to you as always. What I do you have? have... An additional question. Oh, Andrew. okay, Hannah, I won't do I it. I know yet. that you, <laughs> you, you run these things, and I get it. But I have you one can more, run it. One more little question. You can run it. Put me well, in my place. I'm ready. I'm asking a question. Now. All right. Speaking of like, um, I want to read it. I don't necessarily want to write it. Having had this experience with this like group of forty characters. Which ones do you want to write again? Like, what stories do you want to take into the no- the Marvel novel universe? I mean, yeah, I would I would go back to the Punisher in a minute, and uh, I've uh, I've got an idea for a Punisher story, although I think I'm reasonably far away from that uh, from that happening uh, at the moment. But um, uh, yeah. It, we shall have to wait and see. But uh, frankly, I would do a lot of them. The frankly, 
yeah, yeah, this yes, <laughs> I thought that. Um, the uh, I would like to do something with um, Nick Fury and Captain America, perhaps back in World War Two. Um, I'd love to write Doc Strange. I don't quite know how to go about that um, uh, that yet, but um, yeah, the. There's lots of them that I would look at. I think I'd probably be, be better either on the grittier uh, edge. Um, are they saying that mm-hmm. Captain America is another one of my really, really favourite um, characters? And people always look at me funny when I say that. But um, <laughs> I just like the idea of somebody trying to be... I, I, I mean, stuff I wrote about in, in Veteran and War in Heaven, um, how difficult it is to try and be a good person in a violent world. And uh, I think that character explores that a lot. Yeah, he's a straight-laced guy, but you know, you can put him in a gritty story. Yeah. Yeah, like he, he has to put up with grit just like the rest of us. Yes, yeah, and, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, the lovely thing about him is um, people who don't question themselves always sort of lead again back to sort of leads back to fascism uh, of one of one kind or another. If you just decide that you're that you're right, yeah, he is trying to behave in a moral way. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like him. They think he's a goody two shoes. But I mean, that's to my to my mind, that's not the struggle of the character. Whereas a, a, a character is much more morally grey, is often more popular, but often feels like a cop out to me. Do you know what I mean? It's just mm. you know, mm-hmm. because he's morally grey, he can do whatever he wants to <laughs> uh, to get the job done. And we've and we've. We see characters like that all the time, whereas I think a character like Steve Rogers is a bit rarer. I like a character with morals. Uh, however, uh, no more of this uh, superheroes that won't kill and the villains keep tripping over stuff and falling and dying. <laughs> no, no more of that. Let's Batman, Spider-Man, go go kill some guys. You need you need to, mm. or just put them in jail. <laughs> Like, I don't believe in the prison industrial complex, but sometimes you can just send a guy to jail. He doesn't have to die. It's it's a difficult it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult thing for the um, the prosecutor in the trial, isn't it? So, you know, the defense is going, yeah. And then a guy dressed as a giant bat came and beat my client up. You'll need, you... <laughs> I understand that I robbed a bank, but this guy kidnapped me. It was false imprisonment. <laughs> This is a problem, this as a side note. By like Die Hard 4, I was like, you don't have to kill everyone. Good God, <laughs> stop shooting everyone. Uh, maybe they didn't want to live free, Hannah. <laughs> Gavin G. Smith, if our listeners are tuning in because they love Marvel and they're unfamiliar with, their, with your work, what should they check out from your catalog? Uh, if they love Marvel, um... I think the closest thing I've done is Bloodshot. <laughs> Good book. If they like that kind of sort of big screen stuff, uh, reasonably complex plot, lots of overarching storylines and jumping around time and thing, they should go and have a read of the Age of Scorpio trilogy, which uh, is Age of Scorpio, Quantum Mythology, and Beauty of Destruction. Gavin, thank you so much for coming on. It is always a pleasure to have you. Uh, you know, come back sometime for... 
another novelization written by someone else we'd love to we'd love to talk books with you i will do and thank you both very much for having me on yet again i i I do appreciate being invited back our great pleasure (laughs) to our listeners this coming thursday is the beginning of our new season of film novelizations we are starting off with taxi driver by richard ellman with guest julio maria martino which Hannah's making a face, I think, because we recorded that episode a million years ago. Yep. (laughs) Feels like forever. It's every time we release a new season, it's the season premiere is from one million years ago. And then over the course of three months, we get up to something we recorded last week. Please remember to rate the podcast, review it, subscribe to it, tell your friends. We have a Patreon also, patreon.com slash authorized pod. Uh, and you know what? Any money on that yet? Yeah, we make like three dollars a month. We don't really offer content at the moment, but we (laughs) will. When the podcast takes off, we will. (laughs) (laughs) We never say this, Hannah, but I guess follow us on Letterboxd. I'm HS Blackman everywhere. Yeah. I'm A over B on Letterboxd. That's A over and then B Y E like goodbye. As usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you think that you recognize what this is from. Hey, my girlfriend Emma Frost, why have you been so sad lately? Ever since you saw that watcher's eye, something's been up. Well, my boyfriend Scott, I just can't stop thinking about the secret. Good night. So, as mentioned in this episode, most of the plot of Original Sin revolves around an eyeball that reveals secrets to people who are in its vicinity. And so, I put this question to you, John and Hannah. What would the Watcher's Eye do to these characters? And we, of course, see here uh, the orb himself holding up the Watcher's Eye, uh, which is revealing secrets to Ron Burgundy, Captain James Tiberius Kirk, uh, Al Pacino, I think in that movie where he played the devil, and Billy Madison. John and Hannah, I contacted both of you before this game to have you pitch me a secret that could be revealed to characters in a property you have seen. I think you probably thought you were competing against one another, But in actuality, you're both competing against me. The way to win the game is to get more over on me than the other person does. So we are competing against each other. Yes, but you're not, you did not pitch the same movies. Got it. Okay, and so throughout this game, I'm going to ask one or the other of you to mute your Zoom and turn your video off so that it is not revealed by your reaction which of these pitches you wrote and which I wrote. You just don't trust us to be good at acting? 
Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I want so to clarify, Andrew, you will say to me, here's John's here's John's movie and here's nope. two scenarios, which is John's? You will not know yeah, so I'll do the first one right now. <laughs> So first off, John, would you please mute yourself and turn your video off? Sure, I'm muting myself and turning my video off right now. Okay, so Hannah, mm -hmm. the first movie that we have is, of course, this one. Hannah, what are we looking at? Um, This is Morgan Freeman and Marion Cotillard, I guess, from Dark Knight Rises? That is true. And would you please read... The first pitch <laughs> okay. for a secret that the orb would reveal in this situation. Talia learns that Lucius Fox invented a serum to give Batman bat-like superpowers, but it was mysteriously stolen. Lucius decided to never tell Bruce it existed. Mm. Mm, pretty juicy. Or... <laughs> Lucius and Talia learn that Gotham City Police Detective John Blake's middle name is Robin, which is a big secret. <laughs> Hannah, which of these would be more compelling for you? Oh, um, the first one, I guess, would be more compelling. It's like there's more inherent drama there. Mm, mm. Okay, well, that's a not point John, as that's an Andrew pitch. So if I had picked John's, John would get a point. Yep. Okay. All right. Hannah, would all you right. please mute yourself and turn your video off? And John, would you return in all video audio aspects? Because there's a character, there's like a famous comic character named Robin. So at the end of the movie, you're <laughs> like, I thought he was just a new character. But that, you know, it's, it's very compelling. Look, John, <laughs> I like it, even though she hates it. I want to clarify, I don't hate it. I just don't think it would be compelling to the characters because they don't know anything about Robin. <laughs> he doesn't exist. John Goodman, you have not seen Flatliners, I assume. No, but I have a, I have a sense of what it's about from having seen like, you know, like trailers for reboots. Yeah, this is a, a, uh, uh, I think Hannah's maybe favorite film of all time. Of mm -hmm. course, the basic plot uh, is that these people like to die for mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, but then they find that uh, things from the afterlife are haunting them slash kind of their own guilt or something like that. Good movie. <laughs> John, would you be more compelled by this option or the second option? Could you read the first one to us? Yes, of course. Uh, Rachel, of course, character from Flatliners, learns that her friends <laughs> sedated her instead of flatlining her out of a sexist protectiveness. The visions she is having are not flatlining-induced. Interesting. That's quite a that's quite a twist. Or this second pitch. I guess the context for this one is that the um, the one character in Flatliners is uh, very very promiscuous, and and when he flatlines, he has visions, erotic visions of uh, sexual misdeeds of the past. Mm, okay, so Joe learns that Steckel has hooked up with every woman he's burned through immediately after. He discards them. Well, I think that would be pretty a pretty dramatic thing to find out. Uh, that second one. So I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for the Joe and Steckel thing. This is of course Point Hannah, and I think <laughs> I basically agree with you. I mean, I, I know you haven't seen the movie, John, but the up ending of this uh, social circle would be uh, quite quite fun to watch. It's important to know that Joe and Steckel are like childhood friends. Mm -hmm. Who have been through it. <laughs> Well, obviously, you were victorious even without adding that context, so great pitch. This is because I deeply understand these characters, and I think John could tell. <laughs> yeah. Hannah Blackman, what movie mm -hmm. 
is up next here. Oh, Jurassic Park. Please read us this first option. From Jurassic Park. Alan learns that the young Earth creationists were right. The whole field of paleontology is a hoax. John Hammond has been planting skeletons for years as a long con to promote his theme park. That is, of course, option one. And and the photo, uh, Mm -hmm. all the photos available on Instagram if you want to check them out. The photos, of course, of (laughs) all the leads of Jurassic Park. Ian Malcolm, Alan Grant, the lawyer, Laura (laughs) Dern. And her name is Ellie Sattler. And you know that. Or this second option. Malcolm learns that Grant's true reason for being strange with children is that he permanently lost his nephew during a subterranean dig decades ago. Oh my god. Um, that's much more compelling to me. All right, and that it's is that a, second one. That is a not point John, as that is an <gasps> overbee pitch. I'm so sorry. It's okay. Overbee Overby knew so who we'd be pitching to, you know, that's the thing. He he keep he knows all the secrets. He's the the yeah. Nick Fury of this podcast. I'm easily tricked by emotional character interactions. <laughs> I for I think these are both extremely compelling. Uh, I I think that John's is like it's a totally different type of of thriller, like a corporate espionage <laughs> yeah. movie. But yes, th- that's why it's important that I am not able to score in this game because it is inherently unfair. John Goodman, I will eat my shoe if you've seen this movie. Do you know what this movie is? All right, so we're looking at a, a group of uh, sort of like older, middle-aged, wealthy-looking white women at a fancy kitchen <laughs> counter, marble countertop. And they've got a lot of sort of crudité <laughs> arranged. What are we looking at? This is, of course, Book Club, uh, the movie from 2018 uh, about, uh, 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 you know, uh, <clears throat> some senior citizens, some women who have had a book club for a long time and they're going through uh, interesting struggles in their personal lives and relying on each other for support. Your first pitch. Uh, So this is when the Orb's uh, famous secret bomb eyeball goes off. Vivian (laughs) learns that Carol took a bet saying Vivian's hotel would fail before they even launched. Wow. Or your second pitch, John. Diane learns that Sharon's fetish is to eat assorted foods at a book club. <laughs> John, which of these more narratively compels you? I mean, these foods are very assorted. Uh, <laughs> very, so so Sharon could be getting off at this very moment to her, her sick game. Uh, but that said, I think um, I, I think to learn that a friend had, had uh, you know, been, been saying they thought you'd succeed to your face, but betting against you behind your back. That's so compelling. Drama. It's too much, so I will vote for that one. I agree. That's a great one. It's Point Hannah. So good, good work, Congratulations, Hannah. Hannah. Okay, Hannah Blackman. What movie are we looking at here? Uh, The Godfather. This is, of course, The Godfather. Your first pitch. <laughs> Michael learns that Don Vito was always secretly unhappy being a family man, and he planted the car bomb in Sicily so Michael could live his best <laughs> life forever. <laughs> That's fucked up. That is really <laughs> fucked up. Or your second pitch. <laughs> Uh, Vito learns that Michael faked the war injury that he was decorated and discharged for. <gasps> also a good one. These are both really good. Mm-hmm. But what more narratively compels you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm going to go. This is hard because I think both are very compelling and could lead down interesting routes. Did a son uh, lie to a father or did a father gravely betray a son? Um, I'm actually going to go with the second one. 
because I think that relationship of like, I want my dad to be proud of me is like, not more compelling than my dad killed my wife or whatever, but it sort of feels more like what I would want that movie to engage with. That is, of course, an overby pitch. Oh, fuck! <laughs> well done, well I'm done. I'm sorry, John, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to feel which one in my heart, you know, and I just keep getting it It is actually crazy how good your pitches are for the fact that they're losing. The Jurassic Park one is so good, it's crazy it lost. <laughs> I'm not that attached to my pitches. All right, uh, John Goodman, up next, what is this movie? Oh, this is uh, The Mighty Ducks. You seen this one, John? No. (laughs) (laughs) You get the concept of this one, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, your first pitch. Okay, so uh, Gordon's players learned that, as a lawyer, he forced many impoverished families like them out of their beloved homes, Goonies villain style. Or your second pitch. Uh, The entire team sees that Coach Bombay has sent a thief to rob the school treasury using the big game as a distraction. <laughs> they keep a lot of... What do they keep in the school treasury vaults? Is it bearer bonds? <laughs> so we have a case here of they discover the past sins of their coach versus they discover the present sins of their coach. I think if he is robbing the treasury, that's that's a whole separate movie that needs to be going on concurrently. And, <laughs> and in terms of what's going to be dramatically compelling for this movie, it's going to be finding out this secret about his past. So I pick uh, number one. That is, of course, Point Hannah. Good work, Hannah. <laughs> Thank you. Up next, what movie are we looking at here, Hannah? Oh, uh, this is Back to the Future This is Marty McFly's 2015 family from Back to the Future 2. We're seeing three Michael J. Foxes sitting at a table. (sighs) Your first pitch. Marty's kids find out they're really clones of 19th century Irish immigrant Seamus McFly. Or your second pitch. Genetically is kind of how children's work. (laughs) And they are all the same actor. Hmm. Marty Jr. sees that his grandma Lorraine has been recently been, has recently been searching for Calvin Klein on dating and infidelity websites. That's funny. And of That's course, this is uh, Seamus right here. Just a refresher. <laughs> yeah, it looks cute. Cutie patootie. Wouldn't be mad about being that boy. <laughs> In this future, are the grand would the are the grandparents like still together? Like it would be cheating if she. Yeah. Yep. George yeah. McFly is in his thing, hanging upside down. All right. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go with that second one actually because I think both the infidelity aspect is compelling and the oh no you're searching Calvin Klein because that was me in the past and that's gross. I agree. The Calvin Klein one is more compelling. <laughs> it's very compelling. That is of course a not point, John. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, I'm really letting you down, John. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. I'm digging my own grave. (laughs) All right, uh, John Goodman, what franchise are we looking at here? I doubt you'll know the specific movie. Uh, Well, uh, this has got to be Mission Impossible. This is Mission Impossible, uh, the most recent film, Mission Impossible Fallout. Got it. Your first pitch. Ethan learns that Luther still takes illegal black market jobs and, in fact, never stopped. Ooh. This after Ooh. 15 to 20 years of uh, thinking that they were on the straight and narrow together. 
Okay. The second pitch. Elsa <laughs> learns that Ethan still has his Mission Impossible 2 haircut under a scalp cap and wig. And Damn. of course, here is the haircut. Oh, wow. That would be that'd be good a good uh, hair and makeup job. Uh, <laughs> well, Mission Impossible, um, they famously have crazy <laughs> hair and true. makeup tricks. That's true. Um, well, now let me ask you this: Is Ethan Hunt is he a um, is he like a like a Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne kind of like doesn't care about the law, breaks the rules sometimes kind of spy? No, no, he's not. no, he's okay. a goody. He's, he's, he's a goody two shoes. He's a got it. He's a goody two shoes that even though the system has burned him a million times, he comes back to daddy system every time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, then I think that it would be really uh, compelling to have him find out that his buddy Luther has uh, been uh, doing crimes. That is, of course, point Hannah. Good work, Hannah. I agree <laughs> that one absolutely smokes. And our final question, no one has to go off camera or off mic. One minute on the clock. Come up uh-huh. with a pitch for what happens when the eyeball gets pulled out. With Indiana Jones and his son, Mutt. Oh, Mutt. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Mutt, my beloved Hannah's Mutt. favorite. <laughs> the, the thrill I felt upon seeing Mutt. <laughs> Get thinking. John Goodman, what is your pitch? Okay, um, hmm. I, I'm going to say uh, Mutt Williams is going to discover that uh, Indy is not his real father, uh, and his real father is actually Marcus Brody. I think we had sort of similar impulses here, John Goodman, because my pitch is Mutt Williams learns that Indy has a bunch of other kids who he has also abandoned. Oh, no! I'm going to give it to Hannah just because Brody's (laughs) dead, so that's why I find it a little less dramatically compelling. But I think it's great. Wow. John, I think you did really exceptional work for getting knocked down so much. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, I mean, uh, it's going to go on my record and kind of ruin me for future podcasts, but that's you got what you got. 